With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Years ago, H.G. Wells visualized roads such as these in his science fiction fantasies. And today they're a reality. You're listening to the Afternoon Commute with John Adams and Chris Kendall. Welcome to the Afternoon Commute. What a hot afternoon it is here in Southern California. It is September 9th, 2015. And you are listening to the Afternoon Commute with Chris Kendall and John Adams. Uh, today we have Lennon Honor with us, uh, back with us. He was uh, with us one other time to uh, discuss 9-11 and the fear-based mind control, and uh, that went w- really well. And both Chris and I uh, really enjoyed Lennon Honor's work. And I just wanted to mention before we go to Lennon that uh, for any and all things Hoaxbusters, you can go to hoaxbusterscall.com. Chris just recently posted... A, a video up there where he appeared on the atheist experience and uh, it's very fun to see the atheists go through the verbal gymnastics to try to explain away uh, Darwinism and evolutionary theory uh, when Chris asked them the tough questions so make sure you go check that out uh, those atheists are just as religious as any religious person uh, when it comes to their religion of scientism. And uh, that video and audio is proof of that as well. I just want to say good job on there, Chris. Uh, thank you, John. Yeah, you did a great job there. And make sure you check out uh, our article, um, Media Manipulation and Coordination, Why Does the News Get Mixed Up with Fiction?, and this is an article that we, both Chris and I have been contributing to since last December, and it just keeps going and going and going. And what it has to do with is that there are, quote-unquote, events that happen in, quote-unquote, real life that mimic things that happen in the movies, and those movies just happen to come out right about the same time those things take place in real life. It's very strange, and I say that facetiously. Uh just to give an example, also also the example of, of uh, racially charged movies coming out the same day that uh, racial rights come out uh, in the media. Like um, uh, one of the cases there is the movie Fruitvale Station was released, and this is right on the Wikipedia. You just go on the Wikipedia and they brag about it on the Wikipedia that, that uh, the movie Fruitvale Station was released the same hour that the George Zimmerman verdict was read. <laughs> If that, if that does not take coordination, I don't know uh, what does. Uh, the movie Selma was released the same time the Michael Brown verdict was read. And uh, one of the things I recently discovered, which we are going to talk about with our guest today, uh, Len Bonner, uh, his uh, documentary, uh, NWA, 
uh, Straight Outta Compton, a critical analysis, is the movie Straight Outta Compton was released. It was released on August 14, 2015, and that coincided with the catapulting of the Black Lives Matter movement into the lexicon, into the media. And it was all that same week that that all came out. So I found that to be very interesting. We included that in the article as well. To uh, kick off the interview, I've got a interesting little quote here from a uh, not-so-nice person. Her name is Margaret Mead. Uh, she was married to Gregory Bateson. Gregory Bateson was involved in the MK Ultra experiments, involved with the creation of cybernetics, and she herself was a cultural anthropologist and basically did her best to destroy indigenous cultures and then take those examples and apply those uh, examples to the West. And uh, this is an interesting quote from her book, A Study of the Generation Gap. It actually should be called A Study of the Manufactured Gen Generation Gap. But, um, it says here, in all configurative cultures, the elders are so powerful in the sense that they establish the style and the limits within the which configuration is expressed in the behavior of the young. There are societies in which approval by the elders is essential to the acceptance of new behavior. That is, the young look not to their peers but to their elders for the final approval of change. But at the same time, where there is a shared expectation that members of each generation will model their behavior on that of their own peers, especially their fellow adolescents, and that their behavior will differ from that of their parents and grandparents. Each individual, as he successfully adopts a new style, becomes to some extent a model for others of his generation. Okay? Now, what she also says, most most parents, however, are too uncertain to insist upon old authoritarian values. They do not know how to teach these children who are so different from what they themselves once were, and most children are unable to learn from their parents and elders. They will never resemble. In the past, the United States, the children of immigrant parents pleaded with them not to speak their foreign language in public, not to wear foreign clothes. They knew the shame of being the same, uh, of being at the same time unable to reject their parents and unable to accept simply and naturally their way of speaking and doing things. But in time, they learn to find new teachers as guides to their model to model their behavior on that of peers who already adapted new situations and to fit in unnoticed amongst a group whose parents were more acceptable. Today, this rebellious young discover rapidly that the solution is no longer possible. The separation between themselves and their parents also exists between their friends and their friends' friends' parents, and between their friends and their teachers. There are no acceptable answers in the old books or in the new brightly colored school books they are asked to study. And then from Beyond Freedom and Dignity by B.F. Skinner, he gives you a little uh, hint as to what I'm talking about here. A culture is very much like the experimental space used in the analysis of behavior. Both are sets of contingencies of reinforcement. A child is born into a culture as an organism is placed into an experimental space. Designing a culture is like designing an experiment. Lennon, how are you doing today, sir? Oh, I'm doing wonderful. Glad to be back and speaking with the both of you. Thank you. What What did you uh, think of those quotes there from those nice people? <laughs> uh, well, what, one of the things I thought about was the notion of cultural continuity, meaning certain um, 
we can say attitudes, mentalities, belief systems, um, ways of living life that can be passed down from one generation to the next. And how oftentimes um, what takes place is that the positive things that can be passed down to the next generation aren't necessarily passed down. And then the negative things may be passed down. And then outside of that, you have media influence uh, in, or influences that can impact young people in such a way to where their cultural dynamic is totally shifted from what would have been uh, positively handed down from previous generations. So this is the, this to say um, that when we talk about uh, parenting and what my wife and I, we like to call conscious parenting, is that we have to be careful to make sure that what we pass down to our children uh, is the best of what we are and the best of what we know and the best of what we think and the best of what we do. But then we also have to take the next step and make sure that we protect them from the external media influences um, because much of the uh, external media influences in terms of the cultural dynamics happen to be very negative. Uh, and I think that ties to one of the things that we'll be talking about here today, and that is hip hop and more recently a, a, a film that came out, a biopic that came out uh, titled Straight Out of Compton, uh, which is sourced out of the experiences of the rap group NWA, which stands for Niggas with Attitudes um, and uh, their ascendancy. Uh, into uh, iconic, the iconic realm in terms of hip hop and then their cultural influence again, um, the impact that their music, their lyrics uh, have had on generation, on my generation and the generation that has followed um, in the absence of many of our parents uh, providing us with um, the psychological protection needed um, uh, to maintain the best cultural practices within our own lives. Yeah, that's a good point, and um, I also wanted to say that uh, your show, Visions of Manhood, I recommend everybody go listen to that. Um, everybody uh, go check out uh, Soul Visions Radio. Uh, all of Lennon and uh, Lennon's wife's uh, podcasts on there are, are really good. I, uh, I uh, commend you for all those uh, great podcasts you guys uh, did uh, circa 2010 through 12, I think it was. And, um, and, uh, yeah, you can find a lot of, a lot of what you're uh, saying right there in, in, uh, his talks, the, uh, Visions of Manhood podcast. Um, I see, uh, hip hop culture, uh, I grew up right when that was, uh, coming into, uh, coming into fruition. Same time, uh, heavy metal was kind of going out. And, uh, that had succeeded in extending, uh, adolescence, <laughs> very much. And, uh, I think, I think school in and of itself extends adolescence, especially high school. It teaches you to be a child for a much longer period of time. And, uh, even on some of your Visions of Manhood, uh, podcasts, I heard you talking about how there's not really any excuse. It might seem crazy to someone uh, nowadays, but there's not really an excuse for someone not to be a man at 15. And, uh, and, uh, this culture that we live in extends adolescence, uh, on into the 30, uh, on into your 30s. I know people who are my age, I'm all, I'm almost 40, and they are still, uh, adolescent adults, pretty much. And, uh, hip hop plays a big part in that. I want, wanted you to, uh, give you a chance to, Tell the audience about your uh, critical analysis of this film, uh, NWA Straight Outta Compton. And I'm going to guess, I haven't seen the film, but uh, 
a friend of mine I just recently talked to uh, told me about it, and I'm going to guess that it's largely a manufactured story. <laughs> so, yes. Um, yeah, yes. Why, why don't you have, go ahead and do that, sir? Yeah, so I'm, I'm working on a documentary. It's, it's a major work. Uh, this is probably going to be one of my most important documentaries, and I've, I've done quite a few um, in the past. But the documentary centers around a critical analysis of the hip-hop group NWA, which stands for Niggas with Attitudes. Um, and what I do is, is I'm, I'm looking at the lyrical composition because the lyrics are so very important. Uh, I have a saying that words just by themselves, a word alone has very little power and very little influence. But if you repeat a word over and over again, the more you repeat it, the more power and influence that word has. And so therefore, the more a word is repeated, the more influence and power it has. It can actually program people. That's where you get into mind control. You can literally program someone to think a certain way, to speak a certain way, to dress a certain way. Um, to behave in a particular way simply by the words that you use and how often you repeat those words. So in that um, rap music in general, and we can just say hip-hop, but rap music in particular, um, it's lyric-based. Most of it in terms of, of what it's derived out of is the use of words, and, and in most cases uh, a succession of words that occur in a very short period of time compared to other musical forms and musical genres. So it's interesting to, to actually take a critical analysis and critical approach to the words that are being used by a group like N.W.A. And their music was classified as being um, gangster rap, which is actually a misnomer. But in terms of projecting a particular type of a culture dynamic, um, it does play a, uh, it does make sense. Uh, but it is a misnomer um, to look at the lyrical composition is, is key, because what you can find is that the words that are repeated over and over again, the most, those will be the words that will be indicative of the general themes that are being presented, which become a program. And then those programs begin to influence thought and behavior, um, how people speak, how people dress, so forth and so on, how people see themselves, how people see the world, how people see other people. So what I decided to do was I began to listen to the discography of N.W.A., which is comprised of four albums. And I went track by track and I wrote down which words are being used and calculated which words are being used um, most frequently. So I did that for the first track on the first album. I went through all of the first album and did that and I outlined um, which tracks were being um, or, or which words are being used. Uh, the most. Let me give you an example of what I mean here. So um, what I calculated for the first album, which was comprised of 12 tracks, initially it was comprised of 11 tracks, but then it was re-released, that particular album was re-released, uh, I believe it was in 1991, I think it was, yeah, 1991, 87, 89, 89, 90, yeah, 1991, and then there was another track that was added, um, and another one was taken off. The one that was taken off was uh, titled Scream uh, in the re-release. The one that was added was titled A Bitch is a Bitch. Um, so in all this 12 tracks, 50 minutes of music, 50 minutes and nine seconds worth of music, the permanent theme based upon the word counts was the disrespect of women occurred 177 times. So this is what I mean by critical analysis and looking at what were the general themes, the major themes that were being presented, and then the words that were being used. 107, 177 instances of disrespect of women, and that occurs over 50 minutes, a 50-minute time period. So you imagine a young and impressionable mind who's listening to just this first album, and let's say he listens to the first album just once. Well, that's, you know, the influence of, of 177 times of, of disrespect of women. Well, let's say what happens if he 
He listens to it twice or three times or four times. And many of us, we listen 10 times, 15, 20, 25 times. The hardcore hip hop fans may have listened to it 50 times in a year. Well, that means you take 50, you multiply 50 by 177, and that's the figure that you would get. I don't have a calculator on me. If you guys have one on you, you're more than welcome to do the, the, uh, the calculation and let me know what it is. If someone listens to the album 50 times over the course of a year, uh, one times 177, that's a lot of influence because the particular words and ideas, is, it's basically being, becomes a program because it's repeated over and over again. The more they listen to it, the more embedded it becomes as a subconscious program. Um, 177 times just on the first album alone. Uh, the other major theme was self-aggrandizement, which is a major aspect in terms of hip-hop music and rap. Um, self-aggrandizing simply means that a person tries to make themselves appear to be better than what they know that they really are. And so this is a major issue in terms of the African-American community or black community, if you want to call it that. Um, this issue of self-aggrandizement, you hear it in the rap lyrics. You, that's why you often hear rappers say, I, I, me, this is what I'm doing. I have this, I have that, and you don't have this. I'm better than you, this kind of thing. Well, this is just a uh, psychological defense mechanism to make up for the um, the sense of, of low self-esteem that many of these rap artists have, many African-American males have, quote-unquote black males have. And so in, in order to compensate for that, the low levels of self-esteem, in order to compensate for um, how they feel about themselves, what they do is they make themselves uh, appear to be better than what they really are, and then they self-aggrandize. 87 instances of self-aggrandizement on that first album. There were six, six references, negative references to the female body. Uh, women were called bitches 65 times. Again, mind you, this is just in a 50-minute period. Men were disrespected 61 times. The references to alcohol, 59 times. References to drugs, meaning dope, crack, cocaine, so forth and so on, 34 times. The language, vulgarity, uh, shit, 33 times. Uh, fuck, the general term, fuck, 28 times. References to money, 21 times. References to cars, 19 times. General violence against black males, 16 times. Women were called hoes, 15 times. And I can go on and on and on. General violence against black females, 10 times. So the point is that when we talk about the influence these are the themes, the major themes that were repeated over and over again based upon word counts. And see, the word counts, it's analytical. This is what I mean by critical analysis. You can't deny the, the, the language and the words that's being used. You just have to go to the critical analysis and listen over and over again and write these things down. So the point is that that's just on the first album. So I went to the first album, I went to the second album, did the same thing, third and fourth album. And then I calculated all of the figures. And what I found that in the four albums of NWA, Niggas with Attitudes, which comprises a three hour and nine minute period, three hours, nine minutes and 44 second period. Women were disrespected 553 times, 553 times on four albums. The use of the term nigger was used, it was used 385 times. Self-aggrandizement, 345 times. Calling women bitches, 208 times, just in three hours and nine minutes. Okay, and I go on and on and on because I have all the statistics, all this will be inside my documentary. But the point is that if you take a hip-hop fan, and even if they listen just to all these four albums just once, again, most hip-hop fans during that time period, they listen over and over and over again, but just once, what type of an influence, and these are young children in, in most cases, what type of an influence does hearing women being disrespected 553 times, what type of an influence is that going to have on the mentality of a young, impressionable boy or, for the, or a young, impressionable girl for that matter? Okay, and I can go on and on, and we can look at each and, and every one of these calling women bitches and, and calling each other niggas and, use, you know, just the language, motherfucking fucking all this kind of stuff. I grew up with that language. Uh, I, you know, I, I grew up in that quote-unquote culture, so I understand the dynamics. But the point is that here we are 20 years later, almost 25 years later, 
and this movie comes out straight out of Compton. And when the, when the movie was first announced, the first thing I started to think, and I'm talking about before the movie even came out, but when they first announced that it was they were going to be putting the movie together, I was thinking the first thought that came to mind was why? Like, why would this, out of all rap groups, this rap, particular rap group? I mean, this is the, this was the, 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 the music was called gangster rap. There was so much controversy, the misogyny, the disrespect of women, um, the, um, the cultural dynamics of black, quote unquote, black on black crime. A lot of the music in terms of, of the scenery and what they were talking about was basically what I call premature black boy death, wherein other African American males are killing other African American males. In point of fact, um, NWA members, in terms of what they're talking about and, and, and the storylines that they're telling, they're actually killing African-American males. And then they want to say, fuck the police. So it's interesting, the dynamics here. Um, matter of fact, I'll outline this inside, inside the documentary. Um, murder of males by NWA members in their total discography. They killed 10 males. Okay, and we should say African-American males. So they murdered or they killed or murdered 11 females. So in totality, they murdered or killed 21 people who would be considered to be part of their group of people. But when you look at police um, uh, violence against women, there, there was only two instances on their albums. Violence against uh, men, there was only one. And then you put together, uh, you know, uh, a song called Fuck the Police. And yet when you look at, I'm talking about lyrical analysis, set the emotions aside, look at the actual data, what you find is that what the music is actually promoting is the disrespect, the abuse, and the murder of black people. So, I mean, this is what I mean by when we engage this in critical analysis. So for, so to, to bring this to a head, the, the, the film coming out, I found that, or even the, the thought that this film was going to be created, I thought that that was fascinating, and I asked the question, why? Why would this? And what I, what I realized, and I thought about this for a long time, was basically the film is, was, is designed and was designed to indoctrinate the next generation so the next generation will have interest in NWA, and they will go back and listen to the discography. And then all of the programming that was presented 20 years ago is now being embedded into the subconscious mind to the individuals who go back and listen to the discography. And so, so part of what I'm doing in my documentary is to illustrate why that's a problem, but then also to give, especially the younger uh, uh, folk who are going to go back and view uh, and listen to NWA's music and their discography, give them the the, the mental tools, if you will, the the uh, intellectual approach that will be necessary for them to engage in critical analysis so that they can actually understand what it is they're listening to. And then uh, they can ask the question whether or not the lyrical composition is in their best interest. Is it going to shape and mold them in a negative way? Is it going to infect, uh, infect, but also effect in a negative way, their mental state, how they think about themselves, how they think about women, how they think about um uh, sexual intercourse. Cause a lot of the programming in NWA, it's about sexual promiscuity. Um, is it changing how they speak? Is it changing how they dress? Is it changing their behavior? Are they more inclined to engage, uh, in, let's say, in in, um, uh, in uh, smoking marijuana or drinking alcohol because of the programming that's present inside of NWA's uh, discography? And again, we're talking about the lyrical composition. It's not um, subjective. We're talking about data that a person can surmise. They can actually go and get the data simply by doing the analysis and doing the word count. So this is, in a nutshell, is what my documentary will be all about. There will also be sub-issues that I'll be addressing in terms of the influence that NWA's music had on the psychology of young African-American males, but just males in general, as it relates to male-female relationships and then also what it means to be a man. When we talk about being a, a, a state of arrested development, the NWA's music really caused a lot of males to get stuck into the, to, into the realm of boyhood.
Okay, you live a sexually promiscuous lifestyle. It's about drinking alcohol. It's about having as much sex as you can. It's about calling each other niggas. It's about calling women bitches and hoes. It's about partying. It's about money and this, this type of stuff. And, and it's, it's, it's not functional in the context of becoming a responsible human being, a man who is prepared for a positive relationship and is prepared for fatherhood. So I'll be addressing those aspects, too, because, and this is the last point, NWA's music had a great deal to do with the perpetuation of absentee fatherism in the African-American community, quote-unquote black community in, in, in particular. But in the totality of, of as a cultural dynamic, uh, generally speaking, um, here in the United States of America, and we may even say around the world. So these are some of the things that I'll be addressing in my documentary. And the documentary is titled NWA, uh, A Critical Analysis. Yeah, that's some excellent points. I, you were talking about uh, me and John talk about this uh, frequently about music, and uh, you said somebody might listen to an album fifty times a year, and I, I, I said that's a pretty conservative figure because uh, me and John were talking about this, you know, like all these pop uh, radio stations, like they'll play you know a song that's in quote unquote heavy rotation, and uh, they will repeat that song like every fifteen minutes or so. Mm-hmm. And then you say, well, okay, 15 every 15, less four times an hour, and then 16 times, was it 16 times a day, average work day, work days, even longer than that. And then uh, I would notice, like, the same song would be on the radio, like, and it would go on for, uh, like, months. Mm-hmm. And so that, yeah, that, that psychic, psychic driving element where it's just this re- repetitive, these repetitive words and phrases and term, terminologies are like driven into your skull mm-hmm. and uh i think that's something important to understand because um, it applies to a lot of different uh, arenas with um well i mean we was talking about the pre on the before the call about the uh evolution theory and stuff like that and uh they you know p- people promoting it often make a point to like reassert that you know evolution is a fact it's a fact it's a fact and it's like a it's 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 like this mantra and that's an important element in creating uh, a cult. You know, you, you see the same sort of methodology when, uh, you know, cult, cult leaders, you know, they want their uh, adherents to repeat mantras or repeat chants and to, you know, repeat them over and over and over until they uh, embed into their subconscious and their conscious mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, the repetition is key. Repetition leads to programming and programming leads to mind control. Um, that's that's the, the, you know that's like a basic aspect in terms of how you program people. You program people by rep- through repetition, and so yeah, you, this even brings up a, a di- a, an important point that you brought up. I just want to reiterate here. It brings up something else too. If you imagine someone, let's say, who's sitting in a car every single day and they're driving to work, and they put the radio on. How many times? How many? Uh, how much of their day is spent just listening to the radio? Well, if that's the case, what what's being said in those songs that they're listening to, and how often are they listening to those songs? Everything that is being said is being, if it's songs that's repeated over and over again, it's being programmed. And and then we can ask the question. I mean, if it's positive, then great. But if it's not positive, okay, if it's talking about dysfunctional male-female relationships, or it's talking about living a sexually promiscuous lifestyle, or it's talking about disrespecting women, we live in a sexist culture. Um, If it's talking about um, males behaving as if they're boys and you don't have to be responsible, what what type of effect does that begin to have on the individual who's sitting inside their car and they're listening for two hours a day, for three hours a day, for four hours a day? And, And yes, it's a conservative estimate, too, because... 
um, not just the radio, because I remember growing up that, that we had Walkmans. I know people probably don't even know what a Walkman is these days, but it's, you know, like some people they have. And then there was CD players. Some people don't even know what that is anymore. But now let's say MP3 players is probably something new that I don't know about that people, young folk are viewing or listening to now. I don't know what, but let's say an MP3 player or their cell phone. And there are people who they will listen whenever they have time and they will have their earbuds in their ear. And we used to have our headphones on and we would listen throughout the day. Well, it's okay, but we have to ask the question. Is, is the general themes and the messages that we're receiving, especially when we're young and pressed with children, are those themes and messages, are those, are they okay? And so when we talk about hip hop in general, um, the messages were not okay. And then the repeti- the repetitive nature of those messages makes it even worse because the repetition basically fortifies what we're listening to and hearing as a program. And, and as it fortifies itself as a program, it's embedded within the subconscious mind, and then it begins to impact behavior patterns. It begins to what we call behavior modification. Um, I'll also say this, and, and there will probably be people that will disagree, but I'm telling you that I've seen this firsthand, that the influence that hip-hop has had in terms of um, in particular, males and male behavior, in particular, male sexual behavior has been very, very destructive. In point of fact, um, I would propose that the this dynamic that we find in the African-American community of the proliferation of uh, baby mama creation, in other words, having children with women outside of the context of any type of committed relationship, that the proliferation of this, of this particular culture dynamic, there, there, that there is a direct relationship between this proliferation and the types of music uh, that glorifies um, this type of a lifestyle. And, and the, the musical genre that has glorified this type of a lifestyle the most has been hip-hop. And a lot of people don't want to look at that because um, for a lot of people, hip-hop, especially, I'm just using an example within the African-American community, and we can, and y'all can speak to any other community, but within the African-American community, so many of us, we were raised without fathers. And as a consequence, hip-hop and hearing these, these rap artists became like our surrogate fathers. So whatever they said, we listened intently. Whatever they were talking about, we began to accept without critical analysis or critical thinking. And in that much of what they said did not bode well in terms of our ascendancy into manhood, it had a very, very, and extremely negative effect in terms of our intellectual development, our emotional development, our psychological development, our relational development, so forth and so on. And so, therefore, a lot of the things that we see nowadays that are that are being, um, uh, ex- uh, ex- that we see examples of in proliferation in terms of within the African-American community, much of what we see was actually glorified and propagandized within hip hop and NWA's lyrical content was no exception. Yeah, um, you, you were talking about repetitive. Uh, there is not a more repetitive music out there than hip hop. Uh, the beat uh, is a driving beat. Uh, it's a very bass oriented beat, um, a very, um, uh, what, what would you call it? You know, it's, a very it's simple. Cyclical. Yeah, it's cyclical. Yeah, it's a, it's a, yeah, it's a sim- simple arrangement. It's cyclical, and uh, that is elemental in in driving the mind control into your brain. Yes, uh, that that goes along with it as well. And like you you, you said on um, on your hip hop and the hidden hand uh, podcast and uh, in your uh, presentation as well uh, was that. This is not something derived from African rhythms. Those are very. I'm, I'm a musician and I uh, I study jazz, so I know what a complex rhythm, polyrhythm is, mm-hmm. and uh, that is. And hip hop is not based off of complex polyrhythms from Africa, and um, also in terms of messaging and and 
what you're talking about with NWA and, you know, the, the use of the word uh, nigger and, you know, all of the, uh, fem- the uh, derogatory elements towards females, uh, you, I heard you talk about this before, and I concur with it in, you know, my uh, assumption of history is that black people did not act that way towards each other uh, prior to this being injected into their culture. There was a different dynamic uh, before the hip-hop culture was injected. Uh, could you talk about that a little? Yes. Well, what I would say was that what hip-hop did um, is that it glorified certain practices let's say relational practice, especially amongst uh, African-American men and African-American uh, women, it, it glorified certain um, cultural dynamics. Uh, this is to say that um, calling women bitches and hoes, that was occurring prior to hip-hop. Um, but the proliferation and the glorification of that took place in hip-hop. See, what we have to understand, well, there's, so, so what I'm saying is two things that, I mean, we can go back to blues. You, you still see the same dynamics. There's nothing new. Um, you can go back to the blues. You can also go back to minstrel shows. Okay, the same dynamic appears there. So this is not a, a new phenomenon whatsoever. So it would be, it would be uh, incorrect to state that somehow um, it wasn't until hip hop that um, the this extreme levels of disrespect towards women began uh, that, be, that it began began because that's not true. Or or even just the proliferation of the word nigga, um, and we all of a sudden started calling each other niggas. Um, you know once hip-hop came onto the scene. Um, no, that's not true. Th- that Those dynamics, cultural dynamics, and cultural aesthetics, if you will, have been on- going on, ongoing for a long time. Some of them go back, um, in point of fact, to um, slavery, African slavery. Um, but, however, the dynamics that we have to understand, historically speaking, is that when hip-hop comes onto the scene, that in terms of the inter- entertainment industry and in the, in the music um, uh, industry, this was a time period wherein Music in terms of it reaching a global constituency or a global population, this was the, was, was the beginning of this new phase in terms of the entertainment industry, music industry in particular, wherein because of technological advancement, the type of reach, um, that hip hop had was far greater than what it would have, uh, had. So in other words, if hip hop had come onto the scene as a musical genre, presenting messages that actually predated hip hop as we know it today. Okay. So we're talking about uh, the seventies, um, mid seventies. Um, some of you may say early seventies. We say that the mid seventies going into the eighties. Um, if hip hop came onto the scene in 1920, the type of influence that it would have had would have been far less because technologically speaking, um, in order the dissemination distribution of hip hop would have been limited. Okay. However, once hip hop comes onto the scene, um, or some people say early seventies, mid seventies, if you will, uh, going into the early eighties, because of where technology was, now you begin to see the distribution of hip hop being able to reach not only, you know, uh, people, uh, uh, in terms of here in the United States of America, um, from different demographics. So we can talk about, um, lower class, quote unquote, lower class economic, uh, middle class economic or, uh, quote unquote, upper class economics. But then it all was also beginning uh, to, to filter into, 
um, the global population. But that's that's an, that's the result of the technology that was was at hand. So you have distribution uh, ways of distribution. So and and that can be something we can say that could be vinyl records, but then we can get into um, tape. Uh, tape cassettes. I don't know if people probably only remember what those are. And then we get into CDs. Again, this is all around the same time period where you start to see the technological advancement that allow for greater levels of distribution. Um, and then, of course, nowadays we have it's instantaneous just over the Internet. So now in terms of a, a new genre of, of music that in terms of it being accepted as uh, and, and promoted on a global scale, the amount of influence that, that that new genre of music will have will be far greater than what that new genre would have had if it had appeared in 1920, if it had appeared in 1850. So what I'm saying is is that the difference is it's not so much that there's a different message because people believe you me I've done the research okay and um, when you look at minstrel shows when you look at the blues um, when you look at um, even playing the dozens okay a lot of if y'all don't know what that is this is um, it's a cultural practice it's a very destructive and demoralizing cultural practice amongst African-American folk mainly African-American males wherein the objective is to demean and demoralize another African-American male, in some cases African-American female, but African-American male, males, by disrespecting them verbally. And so you talk about them, you talk about their mother, you, you, you talk about you know their hair, you talk about their nose, your nose is so big, you're an African booty scratcher, your lips are so big, you're so ugly, your mama is so fat that she, can, she looks like a whale. You say these types of things, you demoralize the other person, and the other person does the same to you. And whoever breaks down emotionally or uh, and, and, or, or strikes out physically first, they lose. But it's all based upon verbal warfare. Well, this is no different than what we t- see in hip-hop. It's the same dynamic playing itself out. So what I'm saying is that um, playing the dozens, there's a historical context that predates hip-hop. So a lot of what we hear in hip-hop, is it's not anything new. The difference is, however, again, the technological advancement, but then in terms of the language that is being used, um, the context within which these, the language is being used, the over-sexualization, it's on a whole new level. It's not so much um, covert anymore. It's overt. Um, it's more disrespectful. It's more demeaning. Um, it's more vulgar than ever before. So that's the great difference. So I want us to be clear. It's not that hip-hop brought in this whole new realm of, of disrespect of each other and so forth and so on. No, that disrespect has been there as a cultural dynamic amongst African-American folk for a very long time. We're talking about hundreds, hundreds of years in point. In fact, in some cases, some uh, part, some some cultural dynamics have been there for hundreds of years. Uh, be, believe me, you, or believe uh, me, you, if you will, um, calling black women bitches didn't start when, once hip-hop came onto the scene. Um, my father called women bitches when he was coming up. In point of fact, if you want to go back, historically speaking, you will see even in the blues calling women bitches. You, you, you want to go back before that, you go into African enslavement, uh, black women were called bitches. That's nothing new. The difference is that now it's glorified. Um, now it be, has become um, uh, globalized. And now it's not seen, for to, to a great degree for many people, it's not seen as anything extraordinary. It's, it's perfectly acceptable. And, and my, from my vantage point, in terms of the disrespect of women, it's not acceptable. So these are just some things to think about in terms of cultural dynamics that a lot of what we see inside hip-hop, most of the, in terms of the language that is being used, it, 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 much of that um, predates hip-hop. Some of it, of course, the language that we may even hear that, sa- that sounds a little bit different, maybe we haven't heard it before, like uh, calling women uh, thoughts, uh, thoughts, which means that whole over there. Um, that may see appear to be new, um, a new f- form within the uh, 
a new verbiage, if you will, in the vernacular, but it's really a derivative of calling women bitches. It's really no different. I mean, it's just the, the languages or the, the verbiage is a little bit different, but in terms of the meaning of it, it's, it's really no different or that's calling, calling women a hoe. To call a woman that hoe over there is no different than calling them a hoe, okay? So this is all to say that, that um, historically speaking, and this is why I would, I would recommend that people, if you really want to get into the cultural dynamics in terms of the language that is being used, the general themes, and you want to understand the, the, the source of, of them and how long they've been around, you have to begin to look at the history of African-American music. And I went to college and studied music, and I studied um, traditional jazz. But within that, I studied other forms. I studied the blues. And then more recently, I've been studying minstrel shows. Um, Hip-hop is nothing more than a, a modern-day minstrel show. Let me say something else. I know I've been rambling here. Let me say something else. Very interesting that if, if you guys go back and you go look at the minstrel shows and you look at the gestures that people make and you look at um, the general themes that people present, and, the, and, and in some cases, the language. Okay, The language is a little bit different, but in terms of, of what people are saying, the meaning behind what they're saying, hip-hop is, is really the modern-day minstrel show. A lot of people don't want to admit that, but if you go back and look at minstrel shows and then you compare it to hip-hop, there's really not that much of a difference. People dress a little bit differently, okay, but the general themes are still presented there. Um, in many cases, the, um, the, the manner in which it's accepted, here's the thing, because um, we were talking about this offline. The minstrel shows, though there were African-American folk at that time who found it to be entertaining, the vast majority of the people who went and supported the minstrel show were white, quote-unquote, white people. Well, is that any different than hip-hop? The, the, the vast majority of the people who supported hip-hop were not African-American people. They were, quote-unquote, white people. The, the vast majority of people who listened to hip-hop, and I'm talking about historically speaking here, let's be honest, we're not African-American people. They were, quote-unquote, white people. The, the, the vast majority of people who bought albums, hip-hop albums, were not African-American people. They were white people. The people who went and go, to go to the hip-hop concerts, we're not African American people. They were white people. Well, this is no different than the minstrel shows. And if people don't believe me, you go back and look at you know, uh, pictures of hip hop artists in their shows and look and they show the audience. Okay, you go see the, the pictures of the audience of the people who went to go see uh, niggas with attitudes, NWA, mainly white people. You go and look at uh, people who went to go see, um, what is this group? Um, people uh, call it uh, the, the, the revolutionary black conscious uh, group, um, uh, Chuck D. Help me out here. Um, public enemy. You go back and look public at who, public enemy. Who who were the group of people who were going to the concerts? Go look. Go online and go look. And when they show the audience, it's mainly white people. People understand this that hip hop. I don't know. If people don't want it. But this is just the truth. Hip hop is supported mainly by white people, just like the minstrel shows were supported mainly by white people. And there's a reason for this too, by the way. I'm just going to say this, and some people may take. And I'm going to say this too before I say this, because <laughs> this will be controversial. What I'm going to say here. I don't prescribe to the concept of race. When I say white people, I'm not saying the white race. When I say black people or African-American people, I'm not saying the black race or the white uh, African-American race. I don't believe in the concept of race. The concept of race is a modern day invention, only been around since, since the 1600s, maybe a little bit before that. It's a modern day invention. I don't even teach my children that they are of this particular race. I, we don't we don't teach that. It's something that we will not teach our children. Now, if they want to come into that type of mind control uh, dynamic in terms of race-based mind control programming later on in their life, that's up to them, but we're not teaching them, th them that. But I want you all to understand something, that there has been a historical precedence wherein the African-American experience and the most base-level African-American experience and the most dysfunctional African-American experience and the most traumatizing African-American experiences are seen as a form of entertainment by other groups of people and by other African-Americans. Fascinating dynamic here. 
So if you want to look at the blues and the types of stories that are being told in the blues and especially the dysfunctional male-female relationships and, and a lot of the sexual undertones, it's really all, it was all covert then. It's really speaking about sexual promiscuity. Well, this, again, is the base-level experiences of African Americans. This becomes entertainment for white people. This becomes entertainment for African American folk. There's a historical precedence for this. So when you listen to hip-hop and you look at the themes that are being presented, you look at the storylines that are being told, you look at the, the male-female relationships and the disrespect of women and, and calling women bitches and hoes and calling each other niggas, it becomes entertainment for white people. Now, why that is the case, psychologically speaking, I'm not quite sure. I don't know exactly why that would be the case. I, I, this is something that I'm perplexed by, but I want us to understand this dynamic that once a group of people's base-level experiences, the suffering, the pain, the different levels of abuse, the sexual debauchery, the disrespect of each other as African-American men and women, when that becomes a form of entertainment, we have some serious issues as a society. And see, it's not just entertaining to quote-unquote white people, it's entertaining to the very people who are suffering in these ways. I don't understand what that's all about. I have not yet to figure this out. It may just be an aspect from the African-American's perspective of the reinforcement of levels of self-hate. But and then may, perhaps it is from the white African or the quote unquote white person's perspective that it fortifies notions of white superiority and African American or African inferiority, a long-standing subconscious programming that has been running, especially here in the United States of America. I'm not quite sure. These are some things to think about. But I do know this: that as a genre of music, hip hop to a great degree, the vast majority of it, not all of it, but the vast majority of it. Is no different than the minstrel shows. It's minstrelcy. And therefore, the, the projections that we see in hip hop, uh, you know, the, the manner in which people present themselves just becomes a stage show that becomes an entertainment. And then on top of this, what is being spoken about, it's not uplifting the vast majority of hip hop. It's not uplifting. Last point, I gotta say this, that music has the power to uplift a person's reality. Okay? And when I, mean, when I say about music, especially lyrical composition, because we're talking about the repetition of words, it has the power to uplift a person's reality. It has a, the power to maintain a person's reality, and it has the power to devolve a person's reality. And when we look at hip-hop in terms of lyrical composition, how much of it uplifted the African-American experience and the African-American reality? How much of it maintained the African-American's experience and the African-American reality? And then even more deeper, how much of it devolved the African-American experience or the African-American reality. The truth of the matter is that the vast majority of hip-hop, not all, but the vast majority, functioned to maintain the suffering of, of those who were suffering in the African-American community or to devolve the reality of those who were not suffering as much to where they began to suffer even more. And then the notion of it uplifting the reality or the experience of the African-American uh, of the African-American. For the vast majority of hip-hop, it did not do that. There are some examples of that. Okay, we can look at certain particular groups that we would call conscious hip-hop artists or conscious hip-hop groups. But those were not the ones that were promoted the most. Which ones were reported the most? Groups like NWA, Niggas with Attitudes. And that's a serious problem. I know I said a lot, uh, but these are just some of the things uh, in my uh, thoughts you know, that I, I've been really thinking about, especially as I've engaged in the um, research phase of my upcoming documentary. Yeah, I was uh, when I was making that statement that that type of uh, behavior didn't exist uh, prior to hip hop. That's not what I was uh, saying. What I was saying was is it wasn't predominant. Yes. In the way pe in the way people treated each other, uh, even in the black community, 
uh, which, you know, hip-hop was allegedly born out of. Um, and and so, you know, the, those attitudes that were... Uh, it's it's kind of like Playboy magazine. We took, Chris and I have talked about this before. It's like the male chauvinist became more widespread after the culture of Playboy magazine was proliferated. Yes. It's not, it's not that the male chauvinist didn't exist. <laughs> right, right, right. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. It, it was ju- it was just that uh, now that became a dominant part of being a man, and you know that's what I love about your uh, your uh, visions of manhood show because there's there's so many um, of these new manhood shows that have popped up over the years, and they have this kind of uh, ridiculous notion that we need to go back to the 1950s or something um, in terms of the way that people treat each other, you know, women, men and women. I like your perspective a lot better. Uh, than other people, say, you know, saying they need to, you know, grab their woman by the hair and throw her over their shoulder or something like that. So, uh, so um, yeah, and uh, and uh, anything we can do to try to flesh, you know, have a discussion like this and you know let let you uh, uh, come on here and talk about this stuff, which we uh, really enjoy, um, to try to make uh, men more manly. In the responsibility sector and in the caring for uh, not only uh, women and children but also uh, other men, we, uh, that's what uh, we're trying to promote here today. Yes, yes. And so even when we look at um, uh, hip hop as a force, it has had, a, and I'll, I'll propose this that it has had a very negative effect in terms of the project, uh, in terms of the growth process of boys coming into men. Um, you brought up also, um, yes, there are. Um, and you're right, too, by the way, when you were talking about, um, so excuse me, misunderstanding your, your statement earlier on, that, yes, um, you gave the analogy of um, Playboy. It's not that sexism didn't exist and the objectification of, of women didn't exist prior to Playboy or misogyny didn't exist prior to Playboy. But once Playboy came onto the scene, it became glorified. It became more accessible. Okay? And that it was media-driven. In, in other words, the influence that a particular media, that particular media form, and initially it was the, the magazines, and then it was the, the VHS tapes, and then later on it became uh, CDs or, or uh, DVDs, so forth and so on. Well, the same thing applies to hip-hop. But it's not that um, disrespect of women um, you know, didn't exist prior to hip-hop or calling each other bitches and, and niggas and ho- bitches and hoes didn't exist, but it became proliferated, but then also it became glorified. So, yes, um, I just want to reiterate that. The one thing you brought up, too, in terms of when we talk about manhood is, yes, that, that I have seen um, a lot of, not a lot, but I've seen enough to understand uh, enough of this, especially on YouTube, to understand that there is something um, happening in terms of um young males understanding about what it means to be, be a man that is quite disturbing to me. And what, what I mean by that, essentially, because there's sort of someone who suggests, yeah, we need to go back to the 1950s or to the 1960s or to the 1920s for that matter. Um, sexism existed then. And how women were seen then in terms of um, having certain um, le- uh, certain levels of power as far less than what it is today, and this is not to say that we've arrived at any pinnacle in terms of proper respect, um, uh, proper, um, how can I phrase this, uh, uh, equal power, if you will, in society amongst men and women. We, we, we have a long way to go to get to that point. But what I am saying is that the notion of us turning back the clock somehow and then everything being okay, that that's going to be the solution. That's simply not true. We, this is 2015. We have to move forward into the future. Part of moving forward into the future is 
changing the relational dynamics that we have in terms of male-female relationships. The problem is, is that a lot of the music, and I'm not, not, not just talking about hip-hop, a lot of the music and the television shows and movies, just the media-driven programming, um, it does not project positive examples of what it means to be a man or what it means for a woman to be the, that matter, for, for that matter, or what it means to be in a positive male-female relationship, or what it means to be a husband, what it means to be a wife, or what it means to be a father, what it means to be a mother. So therefore, it becomes very difficult. A lot of us, if our families, if our mothers and fathers didn't provide us with positive examples, and most of us didn't have that, I know I didn't have that, it becomes difficult to figure out what it means to be a man or what it means to be a woman or what it means to be in a positive relationship, what it means to respect women, um, what it means to be a protector of women as a man. And a lot of people don't want to hear that these days. You know, I don't know. I don't, it shouldn't have to be. And there's a lot of women that say that. No, I don't, I don't feel like a man needs to be there. Well, you don't have to be. They don't have to be the fool. But if you're in a relationship one with one and something takes place, what does it say about his character? If he's willing to put his life on the line for you, what does that say about how he feels about you as a man? I'll put my life on the line for my wife, for my children. That's what I do as a man. The problem is that how, how, how can I learn that lesson of respecting? I respect my wife's life more than I respect my life. I respect my children's life more than I, I shouldn't say that. I value my wife's life more than I value my, my life. I value my children's life more than I value my, my own life. How is it possible for me to say something like that when I grew up in a household where my father was abusive to my mother, extremely physically abusive, verbally abusive, um, he was abusive to us as children. We never felt protected. How can I say that? Um, and point of fact, we grew up in fear. That's why a lot of what I talk about is, is the programming, you know, mind control programming that is fear based. I talk a lot about that because I grew up in fear every single day, fearful of my father. How is it possible for me to become who I am today? Okay, especially growing up at a time period where hip hop was coming onto the scene, it was being um, globalized, and a lot of the programming there um, was just about disrespect of women. It also spoke a lot about black on black crime, and, and, and a lot of us um, young African American males, we began to develop what I call the premature uh, black boy death syndrome, where and we began to believe that we weren't going to live past the, past the age of seventeen. So many of us were dying on the albums. So many of us were dying in the lyrics. So many of us were dying in the streets. Gang culture proliferation in Southern California at that time. Okay, so I go on and on and on. So how is it possible? Well, I'm going to tell you all how it's possible. It was possible because I was willing to look at my own programming at a particular point in my life and ask critical questions as to functionality. Is it functional for me to call women bitches and hoes? And what does it mean for me to call them that? If I'm calling women bitches and hoes, well, what does that mean in terms of my the, the, the viability of me becoming a man where I can establish a positive relationship? Men who are listening to this understand that if you have these negative sexist views about women, that, that by virtue of the other fact that you have these negative and sexist views about women, you're going to limit the probability. We're talking statistics here. You're going to limit the probability of you being able to establish a positive relationship with a woman. And therefore, if you're unable to establish a positive relationship with a woman, you can't expect to establish a healthy family institution. So how is it possible for me, you know, at the age of 39 to have five beautiful children with my wife? No fussing, fighting in our, in, in our relationship, no arguing, um, no baby mama drama, no cheating, none of that stuff. How is it possible for that to take place? Well, it's possible because I, I was courageous enough to ask critical questions about my own mentality. And then I began to work on myself. I'm going to say this, too, as a, as a last point on this, that I still have sexist ideas. I still have sexist views. I have I have a lot more work to do on myself, and I'm not going to lie to people and say that somehow I've, I've reached a pinnacle. 
But I do know this, that I have come a long way. I still have a long way to go. And every single day affords me with an opportunity. See, the problem is that so many of us, we get stuck in the programming. And then it runs as a cycle of subconscious programming. It runs as a cycle, and we don't even think about it. We don't think about our behaviors. We don't think about why it is that watching porn, not only is it disrespectful towards women, but it demeans us as men. It demoralizes us as men. How are you going to function as a man and you're sitting up here watching porn and, and, and masturbating? You have no sexual control of yourself. Preeminent, uh, one of the preeminent themes of being a man is having control of yourself on all levels, verbally, intellectually, physically, sexually. That's what it means to be a man. A boy has very little control. Men have a lot of control of themselves. We're responsible for our behaviors. It plays into the music that we're listening to. If the music that we're listening to is talking about having sex with as many women as we possibly can, and you know, you're a thought, you're a, you, you know, you're a ratchet, you're calling women bitches and hoes and all this kind. Well, how is that going to impact you as a man, and how you see yourself within the context of male-female relationships? It's going to have a very deleterious, negative effect. So we got to look at our behaviors. We have to look at what we're doing day by day. I'm telling y'all, um, you men out there, young males in particular. You have some serious power because if you do tap into your ability to improve upon yourself as a man, you will find that a lot of your struggles in life will simply dissipate, dissipate including the struggles that you may be having in male-female relationships. You think I'll have, if I was a single man today, you think I'll have a problem with establishing a positive relationship with a, with a good woman? Absolutely not. You think I'll have any issues with arguing and fighting and fighting for power and control in relationships? We wouldn't have any of those problems. None of that. Why? Because I've worked on myself. So this is one of the things that we have to be careful about because oftentimes the music that we're listening to, it, it actually is counterproductive. The movies that we watch, the porn that we view, and in some cases the radio shows that we're listening to, puts us in a state of fear. It reminds me real quickly here, last point. My wife was talking about this yesterday. Now, I promise it'll be the last point. <laughs> <laughs> Because uh, I love this topic. That's why I can ramble on forever. My, uh, my wife, she has a friend, and her friend um, is pregnant. They have children. The, the, uh, her friend and, and the husband, they already have children, and, and the woman's pregnant again. And she's concerned about her husband because her husband is always fearful. And my wife had asked her, well, what is she fearful? He's fearful of Well, She said, well, she, he, started, he just started listening to Alex Jones. <laughs> I said, okay. I said, okay, here we go. Because I remember I was stuck in that paradigm for about two months. This is going back many, many years ago, about a decade ago, actually over a decade ago. So my oldest son is 11. So we're talking maybe about 11, 12 years now. And I, rem I remember that. The problem is, is to be under those levels of control and our levels of uh, fear-based mind control. You're always fearful of stuff that never really, really happens. But you're always fearful of the global bankers, the global elite. In some cases, you're fearful of reptilian shake shitters. Uh, some cases, you're, you're, you're fearful of, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, uh, a heart being switched on and switched off. You're fearful of the state coming and taking your children. Uh, I, you know, this dynamic, to be in that state of fear, how are you going to function as a man who has courage? In your everyday life, where, where things actually are taking place, where things actually have meaning. See, you, you actually, you're basically, uh, symbolically speaking, you're, you're symbolically castrating yourself by, by, um, subjecting yourself to all this fear-based mind control programming. And so, so the concern that my wife's friend had was, you know, it's difficult to deal with him right now because he's always fearful because he's listening, listening to Alex Jones and a lot of what they're talking about is all this fear-based content about all these bad things that is going to take place, including, get this. That if you homeschool, the state is going to come and take your children. And this is one of the issues that I take with Alex Jones because I've seen him talk about this. And they're always talking about these stories of these homeschooling parents who are being responsible for this, their children's own education. People should consider doing that. We do that here inside the outer house. Well, you think I'm fearful about the state coming here? No. 
I'll put my life on down on the line and we'll put it up on YouTube. OK, for the world to see if, if anything ever, uh, like that ever took place, I would put my life on. No one's taking my children. It's not going to happen. I will do whatever I have to do. And trust me, I have the means to do that. And even if that means I have to, to, to um, uh, you know, put my, my own life in, in, in harm's way, I will do that, too. The point is that I've noticed this dynamic and, and Alex Jones talking about these types of stories. So focusing in on these extreme experiences that are examples of homeschooling parents in the state having issues with them for whatever reason. In most cases, it has nothing to do with educating their children. It has some other issue that, 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 that the parents are dealing with. Always talking about those what ha those types of experiences. What happens is people start to get the impression that if you do homeschool, this is going to happen to you. Now, what happens out of that is fear-based mind control programming. It stops people who would have at least considered homeschooling their children because they're so fearful of the state. So they say, I'm not going to do that because I'm fearful of the state. We shouldn't do that because I'm we should go ahead and vaccinate because if we don't, the, the state is going to come and they're going to force vaccine or they're going to take our children. So the programming itself puts us in a position of fear. Mm -hmm. Okay, and anxiety as a man, how are you going to function as a man and as a husband, as a father, if you're in the state of this, this the extreme levels of fear over stuff that doesn't even happen? So this is the, the point that I'm making, in, especially about Alex Jones, is that there is a, a percentage of his programming that is actually designed to stop people from doing things that they should do, like homeschool or at least consider doing like homeschooling and then not vaccinating. Because if you're always talking about these examples of these bad, these bad situations that take place when parents don't vaccinate or when parents uh, choose to homeschool, then what it does is it incites fear in those who would consider doing these things and then they don't do these things or they don't even consider doing these things. So what my wife told the, the, her friend was, okay, well, here's some videos from my husband because I'm talking about this topic and here's some radio shows where he talked about this topic. Go and watch this with your husband and hopefully this will get him to a point where he begins to, to disconnect from all the fear-based programming because I want you all to understand, you men understand this. And I know a lot of you feel like, no, but when I'm doing that, I'm fighting a new world order. You're not fighting shit. <laughs> you're not fighting anything. You're, you're, it's just all in your mind. It's over the internet. It's cyber world. It has no tangible meaning in your everyday life. If you're going to fight for something, fight for your family, fight for how you're treating your wife, fight for how you're treating your children. Are you being the best husband that you can be? Don't tell me that you're fighting a new world order while you're calling women bitches and hoes or listen to music that's calling women bitches and hoes. Don't say that you're fighting the global bankers if, if uh, you're watching point and masturbating. Don't tell me that. Okay. Don't tell me that somehow you're fighting the, the reptilian shapeshitter somehow uh, if, uh, because uh, you're on the internet and you're watching conspiracy theory videos. It's not meaningful or tangible in your everyday life in reality. You got to deal with where you're at. So what I'm saying is that as men, we have to be careful about the external medias that, that, we're, that, that we're accepting into our life. If it's compromising our masculinity and our manhood by putting us in a state of perpetual fear, then it's something that needs to be eliminated. And when we do that, we're able to function as men. So these are just, again, these are some more things for us to think about. Chris, Chris, don't listen to what he says. Uh, <laughs> buy my book, buy, buy, buy the books, buy the seeds, buy the DVDs. Just uh, make sure that, uh, well, what, what he just said was, folks, the New World Order is out there. It is coming to get you, especially the homeschoolers, folks, <laughs> especially the homeschoolers. Hey, I know some people may hear this. He said he's an agent. I'm an agent. Y'all kiss my ass on that. I'm telling y'all right now. This, 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 is the thing. this is the other dynamic, too, that takes place. I have to speak on this, that when we begin, because this is all critical analysis, because I'm, I'm saying that if you listen carefully, and this is not just Alex Jones. This is just all the way across the board. If you listen carefully to what people are propagandizing. So as an example, 
Um, when I say that we should be men and that we should be fathers to our children, that we should be dedicated husbands to our, our wives, that we should be outstanding men, that we should live our lives in ways that are respectful. And I, I'm really big on that. In other words, like I live by a particular code of conduct. I don't cheat people. I don't steal. I don't hurt people. Uh, uh, not on purpose. I don't even hurt animals on purpose. Okay, we live a particular lifestyle. I don't know if it's meaningful to people, but we're vegan. We homeschool. As a matter of fact, I delivered my last three children at home here with my wife with my own hands. I take this shit seriously. Okay, so so part of what I'm saying is that whatever I'm talking about, I'm living it. Okay, right. so whatever I'm telling, whatever insights that I'm giving to anyone, I'm living this. I'm not sitting back here listening to hip hop that's calling women bitches and hoes. I'm not going to support that. So when I speak about it, that's why I can speak about it with a certain level of, of authority and fervor because I live this every single day. When it comes to manhood, I live this. I'm not perfect. And I'm trying to become a better man. But in terms of what I'm speaking about, everything I'm speaking about here, I've achieved already. I've also gone through all of the the, um, the, the alternative media uh, programming. I've gone through all that. Matter of fact, if you go to LindenHonorFilms.com, I have documentaries that will talk about all of the things that people, that, you know, they're into in terms of the alternative news. As a matter of fact, I know more about it than 99% of the people who think they know about it. Okay. And you can go to my website, LindenHonorFilms.com to see all that. The point that I want to make here is this. In the case of Alex Jones, it's interesting um, how he of, often talks about fluoride in the water. And, and I understand this. Okay, I've already done the research on the Florida instance. It's, it is a problem. But what's the point of, of talking about fluoride? And see, the reason why he talks a lot about fluoride in the water is because he wants people to buy uh, water purifiers from his website. So it's, it's, a, it's a hustle. Okay, in essence, it's a hustle. Okay, I, and understand me. As an African-American male, I know hustlers. Okay, it's just a dynamic within the African American community. People get their hustle on for survival purposes. Okay, mm -hmm. um, that is a hustle. But even more deeper than that, to talk about, let's say, chemtrails. Okay, don't talk to me about chemtrails. Don't talk to me about fluoride in the water if you're not even healthy yourself. You don't even take care of your own body. In other words, the foods that you're eating, you may smoke cigarettes, you may drink alcohol, you may, uh, you know, drink the 40s, you may drink the beer. Okay. And I'm this, and this is not a criticism on anyone uh, in particular who's doing this. What I'm saying is don't contradict yourself. Don't try to externalize and say, well, you know, there, there chemtrails, there's chemtrails. Yeah, but you smoke it, you smoke cigarettes. So shut your ass up on the, on the things that you don't have, that you don't really have control over and get your own self together as a man. Well, there's fluoride in the water. Well, then don't drink the water. And while you're not drinking the water, stop drinking the Coke. Stop drinking the Pepsi. Stop drinking the alcohol. Stop drinking the coffee that you're addicted to. You see, so what I'm saying is the levels of contradiction. When we talk about men and being honorable men, you can't live within the scope of those levels of contradiction. See, what happens oftentimes is that those external things become distractions. They're external distractions for us becoming the men that we can be. So we're always focusing on these things that are external that we have no control over as opposed to looking internally and looking at the things that we do have control over because by looking at the things that we that we don't have control over we don't really have to do anything we don't have to do shit but complain but see when you look at what's taking place in your everyday life as a man you look at the things that you that you need to change your diet your, your thoughts about women you know you're sitting up there watching porn and you're masturbating well that's something that you need to change in you as a man and that's where your true power lies see the power doesn't a lot doesn't uh, doesn't exist within the illuminati Okay, the power doesn't exist in the global bankers. The power doesn't exist in the reptilian shapeshifters. The power doesn't exist in Satan or Lucifer. No, the power exists within you as a man to transform your life. You have transformative power, but you will never transform yourself and become the best man that you can be so long as you're externalizing your power onto these things that are external of you and then, and then ignoring those things with, within you that you know you need to change. In other words, you know, um, don't talk to me about health. And you're unwill unwilling to stop eating McDonald's or you're unwilling to stop uh, drinking the, the Coke and the Pepsi. So that's what I'm saying that we got as men, 
Okay, because these are practical things that we can do in our everyday life. We have to be clear that we should not be living in those levels of contradiction. That if we're going to say that we're, quote unquote, fighting a new world order, you better fight the order that is taking place within you, your internal order first, before you think you're going to begin to change things on the external. Yeah, and it's all based on this, you know, fear of the unknown, some of, you know, un- unseen event that's kind of right around the corner. And it's always just right around the corner. You know, we're heading around the corner and here's going to be what global collapse or what have you. But I, I just want to put this out like I've, I've brought this up multiple times before. If you go look up the definition of what civilization is and then it, it'll it'll give you the uh, um, definition that it, in- it incorporates the domestication of humans and animals. So in this, and, and I believe that this is on topic in that what, what we're talking about is sort of this uh, degradation of the male, and it's, you know, done through different uh, methodologies. But I think one uh, important one is, you know, when you're, when you're coming up male, and I, I don't think this, and, and why I think it's uh, more, more pertinent to being a male uh, as opposed to female, because within the the institutions that you get raised in, because everybody's, you know, generally speaking, is raised in public schools. You know, you don't get raised by your parents. You get raised in an institution. And um, so, you know, this, you look, the, the so-called al- alpha male or would, would, is going to have pent-up anger, pent-up frustration of being, you know, told what to do, being directed, ordered around. And then the music and the culture out there gives them an outlet or, okay, so you're feeling this anger, you're feeling this frustration, and you need to have it validated. Well, how is it going to be validated? Well, it's going to be validated through the, these uh, constructs, this, you know, uh, gang- gangster rap or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the heavy metal, hard heavy rock, metal. rebel, yep. punk rock music. You know, mm-hmm. all, all, these have, all these incorporate the same, you know, dynamics. And um, so... It encourages you. It encourages a self-destructive behavior. So, okay, we're going to show you how, demonstrate for you how to uh, act out your frustrations, and then what that does. You know, a lot. A lot of this, uh, uh, you know, washes over into uh, criminal activity. Yes. And then you get taken, and then you get put into the prison industrial complex, which takes you out of the uh, gene pool, and then you can't uh, procreate because you're in prison. And then they, uh, inside the prison, it's this whole kind of uh, homosexual culture then gets regurgitated back into the culture at large, and that gets incorporated into rap music and rock music and all that. And then um, you end up with a sifting mechanism so that you can take uh, aggressive-prone males, uh, give them a behavior patterns to follow, follow, and then when they do follow it, it's an excuse to take them and put them into the industrial prison complex and take their genes out of the gene pool so that you uh, through subsequent generations you end up with a more and more docile compliant uh, male and of course you know the female is is sort of naturally uh, compliant so they, they they can more readily fall in line with the institutional dictates but yeah i, th- I think that's that's something uh, for consideration yeah, well, the, the dynamics, too, when we talk about hip-hop, you have you reference to heavy metal, and I just want people to understand this, that it's not just hip-hop. We can look at other genres of music, and you'll see the same proliferation of certain themes of imagery, inclu- including criminality. Oh, yeah. Um, and point of fact, hip-hop, um, you know, I heard this this brother say this recently, and I wish that I would have the means to have him in my documentary um, talking about N.W.A., and he, he one of the things he said was that hip-hop was the propaganda arm of the criminal justice system um more specifically he gave reference to the prison industrial complex right 
And I thought about this for a moment and I said, oh, you know what? That's wow. You know, that is a profound statement. And it is so very true um, that there are a lot of males who became criminal minded because of the music that they were listening to. Because one. Exactly. And it's the other dynamic, too. I know there are people I know. I know people don't want to hear this. I know. I know you don't want to hear this. You don't want to hear this about KRS-One. You don't want to hear this about uh, Public Enemy. You don't want to hear about this, this about any quote unquote conscious rap group. I want you all to understand something that the notion of conscious rap group, it's all relative. Mm -hmm. That if you have a baseline um, orientation that is being presented in rap music that is based upon extreme levels of disrespect, um, sexual promiscuity, drug addiction, um, the disrespect of women, um, what is this, uh, sexual promiscuity, no, say sexual promiscuity, uh, black on black crime, uh, criminality. If that's the base level, then anything outside of that, any shit that you come up with is going to be considered to be conscious. <laughs> Relatively speaking. But if you go yeah, back I always, to I always, whenever, whenever I would hear my friends, you know, when I was in high school listening to quote unquote conscious rap, i.e. Tribe Called Quest, Gangstar, Dave Russell, all that stuff. I, I noticed that, like, like later on reflecting on it, I, I noticed that the same themes are all are in all of the quote unquote conscious rap. Like even even like rolling up on somebody, you know, to <laughs> use yeah, the phrase. Yeah, it's all there. It, it, yeah, and, and and same thing with uh, you know uh, uh, you know. Uh, uh, playing the dozens and uh, disrespecting females. That's all in the conscious rap. I think the only difference, really, honestly, uh, between the two, uh, because I can never figure out what the conscious rap was, is that the, the quote-unquote conscious rap uses, like, softer rhythms and uh, softer, like, samples, like more jazzy samples. Yes. And, so, and, and soft, because, softer verbiage, too, by the way. Right, exactly. Yes. And so what it what it mm -hmm. does is because jazz is considered, especially to uh, African Americans, is considered to be uh, complex and more thought oriented, which it is mm -hmm. most definitely. That when that was applied to that particular uh, genre of rap, that that made it somehow conscious because it's using jazz. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yes, that's an aspect of it. But the language to the verbiage was a little bit different. It was more political. Okay, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's more conscious. Okay, again, it's all relative. So, so part of what I'm saying is that even the concept of conscious rap, people have, and see, it's only conscious when you, it, for, for instance, when I was 15 or 16, it seemed to be conscious, but I was thinking on a 15, 16 year old level. If, if not, not less than that at the age of 15 or 16. But as a grown man who's 39 years old now, who has five children and, and, you know, been married for 14, been with my wife for 14 years, uh, it's not conscious to me. You, you see, it's not because because here's the thing that even if you listen to conscious hip hop, how much of it spoke to what it meant to be a man? How much of, how much of it spoke to the importance of transcending boyhood and becoming a responsible man? How much of it spoke to being a um, an outstanding human being wherein you respected women? You know, how much of it spoke to establishing a, a positive relationship with the woman and establishing a, a family institution to being becoming the best man you can be to becoming the best father that you can be? How much of it spoke to that? Very little of it. And the reason why is because the quote unquote conscious hip hop artists were not living that. As an example, um, you can look at, at um, Public Enemy. How many of those individuals who were in Public Enemy actually established positive male-female relationships? How many of them have baby mama 
baby mamas, how many of them was on drugs, on alcohol? This is something to think about. If they were truly conscious, you would expect certain, you would expect a certain out, outgrowth in terms of their everyday life that would actually uh, uh, proliferate itself. Uh, especially in the early days, you would expect that if they're so-called conscious, but that wasn't what we saw in those, in the, in the early uh, days of, of public enemy. And I'm not saying that, that you throw out the full body of work. What I'm saying is that we should also ask critical questions. What is conscious rap exactly? Uh, another example is KRS-One. You guys going back and listen to his first album, which I found to be quite fascinating. Okay, the title of it in and of itself is quite telling, Criminal Minded. See, a lot of people on the East Coast, they, they hold KRS-One in this, this high esteem. He's like this, you know, positive so far. But if you go listen, listen to his first album, he actually started gangster rap prior to N.W.A. starting gangster rap. <laughs> yeah, he's going to cover the album holding an Uzi. Yes, but if you but if you listen to the actual lyrical composition, it's really not that much different than NWA. See, NWA just took it; it became more vulgar. But if you listen to it in terms of the, the black on black crime, you listen in terms of the general theme, you, you, how he's talking about women. I'm talking about KRS One. It's really no different. It's the same theme being represented itself in advance of NWA coming out. Now the difference is that it, that um, and thankfully uh, uh, so give the brother credit. KRS One grew beyond that dynamic. But did you know that if you listen to his full body of work, he does return to that dynamic of gangster, quote unquote, gangster rap, can gangster. As a matter of fact, matter of fact, he has a song. But I'm gonna tell y'all something. This 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 hip hop thing is a serious. There's some serious stuff in this, including the promotion of pedophilia. Carol Wilson One has a song, has a rap song where he's talking about this young lady who was 13 years old that he had sex with and how good she was at having sex. And there's a music video for this. You people go and look at this shit. And then after, and this is after he's so-called conscious. You go and look at that shit and then come back to me and you tell me what's going on really. See, this is another dynamic within the hip-hop culture, and that, and, and a lot of it has to do with the hip-hop artists, and once they get onto the scene, they start going on tours, and they have access to all of this vagina. In other words, they, they have access to all of these women, in many cases, young ladies and young girls who would be willing to have sex with them because of their status in the entertainment industry. And there are a lot of hip-hop artists who have taken advantage of that, and they have had sex. It's really pedophilia. Matter of fact, N.W.A., um, they have a, 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 a track um, where... Uh, who is this? Dr. Dre is talking about they're running a train. That's when a, a group of males are having sex with one female. They're, they're having sexual intercourse with one female, one after another. And in this case, they're doing it inside of a car. And in this case, the young girl is, how old is she? 14? I think she's 14 years old. And they're talking about having sex with this young girl. She's the preacher's daughter, by the way. Okay, this is pedophilia, but see, in terms of the lyrical composition, we don't ask critical questions about that, whether it's KRS-One or NWA. How can we say somehow this is quote-unquote conscious or this is somehow political? And see, we're so pick, we pick and choose. We'll say, yeah, but that's just one example. Yeah, but that's part of a mentality that's present in him. He wouldn't be saying that shit unless it was part of his mental outlook. He wouldn't be saying that unless he had accepted that as a paradigm that was somehow okay, unless he's speaking out against it. And in this case, Karis one wasn't speaking out against having this young girl who's 13 and how good it was called 13 and good. Y'all go and look at that shit. It's a, there's a music video for it and then get back to me. Or, or NWA where, where uh, um, uh, Dr. Dre is talking about running a train, this group of African-American males having sex with this uh, 14-year-old, 13-year-old, whatever it was, 13 or 14-year-old. Y'all going to look at that. That would not be in their mentality. And they wouldn't be speaking on it and, and glorifying it. Okay. It's one thing to, to, to say, look, this is wrong, but it's another thing to glorify it. Unless there was an aspect of their character as men, there was an indicative of a mentality that somehow says that it's okay to have sex with children. And we listen to it and we listen to it without critical thought. Again, critical thinking is key. I say this inside my documentary trailer, which hasn't come out yet, but it's going to be coming out soon. 
that the problem that we tend to have, and not just African-American folk, but just everyone, just all the way around the, the world, we got to get this together, ladies and gentlemen, my human family, is that we don't engage in critical thinking. We don't ask the question, what does that mean exactly? Why are they saying that? How is that going to impact how I think, how I speak, how I dress, how I behave? How is that going to impact my children? We don't even think about those things. Most of us don't. It's a serious problem. Part of what I'm saying, especially when I tie this back to manhood, one of our greatest gifts as men is not to be these sexual beasts and, you know, the alpha male who dominates women. That's a bunch of bullshit. And I'm an alpha male, too, by the way, if y'all haven't noticed. Okay? Mm. That's not what it means to be a man. What it, part of what it means to be a man is having proper intellectual process to where you can think critically about things and ask critical questions so that you can get to the truth. And that's one of our gifts as men. And see, when we're not utilizing that gifts, again, if we're always in a state of fear, fear compromises intellectual pro, pro, uh, uh, our intellectual processes, if we're always worried about, you know, the global collapse, people have been talking about that shit for 15 years, I kid you not. <laughs> or, or martial law, they've been talking about that shit for 20 years, I kid you not. I'm old enough now yeah. to know the programming. We're stuck in that paradigm. How are we going to engage in proper intellectual process when fear itself compromises our ability to think clearly? So part of what I'm saying is one of our gifts as men is to think intellectually. And so we have to develop that skill set. And, and this level of intellectual process and critical thinking should be applied to the music that we're listening to, to the radio shows that we listen to, to the television shows that we view, or the movies that we view, or the magazines that we take a look at, what we're viewing on the Internet. We have to take the same critical approach to every single aspect of our lives because when you do that, you come into a true level of power because you can ascertain whether or not what it is that you're listening to or you're viewing or you're consuming is in your best interest, is in your wife's best interest, is in um, the best interest of your children, is in the best interest of society at large. And I'm going to tell you all something, that the promotion and the glorification of pedophilia, having sex with children, KRS-One and NWA Dr. Dre, that is not in the best interest of the human species. Someone tell me I'm wrong on that. No, it's ridiculous. It's it, it's like this always uh, this need to always you know raise the bar or push the envelope as they call it. You know, it's it's it. You know, you you, you got to be hardcore in order to define yourself as hardcore. You have to go further and further into the uh, toilet. You know, so that that is just the the progression of the way the culture is headed and. Uh, you know, you see, they take these uh, Disney Mouseketeers, and then they they and then they first roll them out, and they present them as sort of young and innocent, and they actually put clothes on them, and then they develop a following, and then they uh, transmorgify into these uh, gyrating sluts that uh, uh, you know promote just promiscuity and every kind of form of deviancy and everything like that. And uh, yeah, that's not. Uh, that's not just by happenstance. That's just repeated over and over. It's just repeated examples of this. And uh, yeah, well, let, let's do let's do the examples so that people understand. Because I, I want the examples that you mentioned. This speaks to the programming that uh, quote unquote I'm just using quote unquote white America gets. Because African American folk, we get a certain type of programming that filters into um, a popular culture, as an example in hip hop. But let's look at Disney. You gave reference to this. Give us three examples. And I'll give you an example too. But I want if you want to, you can do two. I'll do the other one. Give us three examples of exactly what you're talking about here. Oh, the, you know, the first, I think the big ones coming out will be like Britney Spears. And, yes. and uh, cause I remember, because, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit older than you guys, and I remember, uh, you know, just going to the record store, and then, you know, there was like this Britney Spears cover. So it's like really young girl, and, you know, she's got uh, clothes on, and then she's, but she's got this sort of provocative pose, but it's not really kind of explicitly provocative, but it is, you know, it's suggestive, and then it just kind of, 
progressed from there. I remember the very first early, uh, you know, uh, Britney Spears material, uh, and and uh, then I see it. Then I saw you know the same process repeated with uh, what's her name, uh, My, uh, Miley Cyrus. Yes. Same thing. Same same identical kind of pattern. And here's another one, uh, Christina Aguilera. Yeah, she, she was a Mouseketeer, too. Yeah, so just as an example, these are three examples. I mean, there's more than that, of course. I mean, you can even look at Justin Timberlake, but there's other examples, male and females. And this is all coming out of Disney. You would think that if Disney is this bastion of family values and you know morality and ethics and so forth and so on, that the, the pr- end product of Disney and these, these particular individuals wouldn't, it wouldn't be what it is. But the fact that it is what it is proves a point. Because what happens is, and I've talked about this in one of my earlier documentaries, that what happens is that it's a form of social engineering. If you can you can present a Britney Spears and all of the young ladies, they see her as a model um, early on, and she's dressed, uh, you know, semi-appropriately at least, and she's not, you know, talking about sex in her songs, and she's not gyrating and breasts aren't hanging out, because she's just a little girl at this time. But the other, other little girls who view them, Mighty Cyrus as another example, Christina Aguilera, they began to externalize their identity onto these people. And this is something that we tend to do, especially if parents aren't there to keep their children protected uh, protect from this program. Because ideally, you would want that if you're living as, a, as an honorable man, you want your son to project his identity onto you. He wants to become you, but greater. And as a mother, if you're living your life, again, keyword honorably, you would want your daughter to want to become like you, but even greater. But in the absence of that, we tend to, as children, we tend to externalize our identity on, onto whatever we can find. The hip-hop artists for a lot of African-American males. For a lot of African-American males, it was KRS-One. For a lot of people, a lot of African-American males, it was EPMD. For a lot of African-American males, it was Tupac. So we externalize our identity onto these individuals. Now, what happens is that if that particular individual, in the case of, let's say, Miley Cyrus or in the case of Britney Spears, um, if in the beginning they're presented in a particular way and you have all these young girls, mainly, quote-unquote, white girls in the United States of America, begin to project their identity onto them, they become... You know, uh, Britney Spears becomes like their, uh, what is the term that, that people use? Um, not icon, but their um, uh, role model. Role model, yeah. role model. What happens is, is as you transform and as you stated, transmogrify Britney Spears, she begins to change. How she dresses begin to change. She begins to become more sexualized and her song lyrics become more sexual. Now she begins to gyrate. Now her breasts are all hanging out. And now it's gotten to the point where now it's all crazy. I mean, now yeah. she's kissing other women in the video. It's like, what's going on here? Okay. Yeah. Well, the young girl has already external, and I'm talking about the young, and here in the United States of America, the young quote-unquote white girl has already externalized her identity onto Britney Spears. She may have already started to dress like Britney Spears in the beginning when J- Britney Spears presented, was being presented in a particular way, but now Britney Spears becomes this whole different thing, and now the young girl, through this transformation process, which is subtle, but it takes place over time, the young girls who view this, they begin to, begin, they become transformed over time, too. And then parents ask, what happened to my daughter? What happened to my son? Well, your daughter or your son was wrapped up into the Disney programming and the Disney programming took over their identity. And as they transform the archetype of that identity, your daughters, your son began to transform themselves unbeknownst to them and unbeknownst to you. Yeah, so, 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 yeah. like, like women are being trained to, uh, you know, by this twisted ideal of quote unquote feminism, which is, you know, that's the, the, the way they, the way they, uh, um, define feminism is is totally invalid. But uh, yeah, use your sexuality as a weapon against the man, and uh, that that way you're expressing your feminine power, and uh, you know uh, uh, you know get uh, lure men in and seduce them and take advantage of the man and for you know material gain or whatever it is you want. And so yeah, this the initiation of the uh, 
war of the sexes. And uh, so then, you know, the uh, on the opposite side, they got, you know, the rap, the rock music culture and stuff that, uh, okay, now they identify as, oh, oh, what is some of the lyrics like, bitches ain't nothing but hoes or something like that. Mm-hmm, and then, mm-hmm. okay, oh, there's confirmation. Oh, yeah, oh, she definitely yeah. a hoe. I mean, mm-hmm. no doubt about that. And then, so, yeah, so, so you're, 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 you know, you got confirmation, you got proof of this, uh, uh, of the uh, expressions that are put forward in the in the lyrics. Yes, and then that becomes an archetype for a lot of males in terms of how they see females. Um, this is another interesting dynamic because you brought up, you know, calling women bitches and hoes. I know I've, I've said it here too. Um, it's interesting because uh, in, in the case of NWA, they use bitch a lot. In, in fact, um, the four albums of music, three hours and nine minutes, they use the term bitch 208 times. So if anyone, you want to do the math, you, you you can take three hours and nine minutes and then you figure, OK, in three hours and nine minutes. And I'll do all this, this statistical analysis too in the documentary that the word they call women bitches 208 times. Well, how many times per hour does that mean they're calling women bitches and how many times per minute are they calling? So on average, what would be the, the calculation? This is some fascinating things to look at. When we talk about critical analysis, data collection, so forth and so on. The, the thing is this, that the use of the term bitch, especially in NWA's music, because um, I've heard people say, yeah, but there are women out there who are bitches. Okay. If we want to accept the definition of the bitch and one or, or of a bitch and one, and, and, and if you want to be okay, and I'm not saying that I am, but if a person wants to be okay with calling a woman a bitch, maybe a bitch who is of an unsavory character or, or a woman who is of an unsavory character that somehow or is, is uh, disrespectful towards males, that, that somehow you can classify her as a bitch. I, I wouldn't do that. I would simply say, because it's dehumanizing to call a human being an animal. Okay. Right. Uh, it's another thing to say, you know, she has issues and, and maybe she's been traumatized or maybe she, or she has daddy issues. Maybe she was abandoned as or maybe she was sexually molested. It's a different thing if you approach it that way and then you ask critical question on like, how can I help this young lady? Or how can I help this sister? Simply calling her, her a bitch is, is counterproductive. But the point I want to bring up here is that the, the individuals in NWA in particular and just in, in hip hop in general, the types of females who tend to gravitate towards hip hop. I'm just going to say it too, and I know a lot of you females are going to hear this. You're going to feel, you're going to get upset with me. But the types of females who tend to gravitate towards uh, hip hop tends to be the ones who have who have had um, a history of being abused on particular levels. The reason why I'm saying that is because when it comes to women, hip hop is abusive. You listen to the lyrical composition and you do the critical analysis and you realize, and in particular towards African-American or black women, it is abusive how they talk about. And most of the women that they're talking about when they're calling them bitches and hoes. Um, it's based upon, the, I'm talking about um, male uh, hip-hop artists, it's based upon the quality of the women that they're used to dealing with. And the reason why they're used to dealing with those types of females who are those, that particular type of quality is because of their own particular quality. So in, in other words, you're not going to deal with, the, with a particular type of female that you would call a bitch unless you had your own personal issues that you haven't worked through as a man. You think I'm going to be dealing with with a woman who, you know, would be disrespectful to me or dresses provide? I wouldn't. I just would not do it. Now, I would probably ask the critical question. How can I help her to reach beyond that paradigm? How can I help her to heal? But I definitely wouldn't be dealing with her on a sexual level or within a relationship because she has some healing to do. But see, for the male who has not worked on himself, he will tend to deal with females who are who have not worked on themselves. So in hip hop, what happens is you have males who have not worked on themselves and who have not become men and who aren't interested in helping females, and who talk, and when they talk about females, it's very destructive, very demoralizing, very disrespectful. They're speaking about their personal experiences, and they're speaking about it as if it should apply to all women. 
and that it should apply to all males, that all women are bitches because of their own personal reality, meaning that they're hip hop artists and the types of women that they are dealing with that is reflective of their own internal condition as a male. But they're promoting it as if this is that's why when you listen to hip hop. How many times do you hear that males talk about hip hop artists talk about how there are good women out there? And if there are women who will be honest and sincere with you, women who, who you would want to marry and raise a family with, how often do you hear that? And see, the reason why you tend not to hear that in terms of hip hop is because the average hip hop artist, the male artist, is living a sexually promiscuous lifestyle. And therefore, the notion of him dealing with a woman who is of a high quality and how high quality, quality of, a, of, of a woman, it becomes null and void because a high quality woman is not, is not going to want to deal with a male who is living a sexually promiscuous lifestyle and calling women bitches and hoes. Mm-hmm. So even within the concept and the construct of hip hop itself, you have this fortifying force that is rooted in the African American hip hop artist uh, experience of dealing with a particular type of female that he would call a bitch, but then globalizing that particular orientation as if that should be the standard and that's what you should be you should expect in terms of all females. That's totally counterproductive. So there are a lot of males who internalize that and then now they see all women as bitches and hoes. You see the programming here? And then the women who listen to it you have to have had a level of, of abuse at the hands of men on some level to go and listen to um, these rap artists abusing women and being okay with it. Okay, so there's some very deep-seated issues that, that really begin to, to surface when you really begin to dissect intellectually these dynamics that take place in hip-hop. And it's not just hip-hop. There's other genres of music, too, that promote the same type of psychological... How can I phrase this? The same level of psychological trauma that is regurgitated and becomes a new paradigm that is accepted as a socialized norm. Yeah, I was uh, talking about this with John, how, um, well, you know, you see these same dynamics in different genres of music, and we were discussing the heavy metal genres of the 80s, and, you know, they had the hair metal bands, very... um, you know, feminine. Uh, I remember that too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it was, it was very odd how they have these, uh, you know, f- feminine expressions, and then coupled with this sort of uh, alpha male dominating, uh, sexually promiscuous lifestyles, and uh, and that sort of thing, and then sort of this, uh, you know, uh, objectifying women and 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 you know, just seeing them as just you know, sexual objects, and and then um, so that that kind of in a in a perverted twisted way celebrated this sort of uh, alpha male type uh, archetype and then uh, I but I, I've noticed this as of late is, is my limit exposure to kind of uh, more recent uh, sort of popular rock music that is kind of a derivative of that uh, sort of genre that's uh, as it's kind of developed along turn and transforming into this more uh, like supplicating uh, uh, Perspective, like the songs are in this context of, like the 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 male now is is taking on the role of being more supplicating to the woman and more deferring to the woman and more uh, uh, subservient to the woman and it, and taking on more of a feminine role in in the behavior. So it's, it's interesting how that is kind of transformed over the over the years into into that from. Uh, a lot of a lot of what I, I mean, kind of a, kind of a limited exposure to it, but uh, I I notice that for any any time I hear some of these more popular rock bands, it, it it's like the, and they all kind of stay on on the same page on the same theme, and it's and and it's it's still this uh, um, distorted, 
you know, relationship dynamics or these these, these dis, dysfunctional dynamics that are being expressed in this music, but in a in a in a, a different way, you know, in a, in a kind of uh, now the role reversal is gone from just the uh, uh, explicit outward appearance into this sort of more uh, uh, behavioral expression. Yes, yes, and that's that's uh, a proper. Um uh, intellectual process that you're referring uh, to here. And what I thought about while you were saying that is that oftentimes what happens is that you see the extremes uh, fluctuating over time. Yeah, so, it's so, like an extreme. Yes, yeah. it's always an extreme. It's always an extreme. So um, even within hip-hop, there, you know, uh, well, let me give another example. Um, artists like uh, Michael Jackson, you know, he, he went through the vicissitudes. He transformed himself, too, over time. I mean, and, and not only in his music and his music composition, but also in terms of his physical appearance. And so you see this transformation. Another individual, in terms of, of um, you know, the extremes, uh, would be Prince, because uh, Prince, the former, the artist formerly known as Prince, because there, there was a lot, especially uh, in the early '80s, um, late '70s, going into the early '80s. This is especially coming out of the black exploitation films. You start to see the feminization, and it is, it, you start to see the resurgence of the feminization of males uh, taking place. Right. Um, and so, so, um, so a person like um, uh, Prince, or the artist formerly known as Prince, he really he, he kind of like uh, what is, he he blurred the lines between you know manhood and womanhood or or masculinity and femininity. Like, is this guy like a male or is he a female? I mean, how can you like how he was dressed? So yeah. so so even within the context of the individual caricatures that people play, you see the blurring of the lines and you see these extremities too, and then they fluctuate over time. And see that the problem is is that that causes confusion in individuals because uh, uh, leading into to gangster rap prior to gangster rap, you look at hip hop. But then you also look at other forms of music, like you look at Michael Jackson, you look at, at Prince, which was, you know, really uh, during that time period when, where hip hop really began to, to really uh, become globalized. You see the passing of the torch, in essence, in terms of people's folks, especially in the African-American community, from artists like um, uh, Michael Jackson and Prince moving over into hip hop arts with the new, next generation. But that also, because this gets back to something you brought up in the beginning, the lack of cultural cohesion that, that you know, the, the, the previous generation, they were listening to, to Michael Jackson. I'll, I'll say, I was really, really young when Michael Jackson, um, you know, when he went solo and stuff but but listening to him and then how he presented himself you know he began to change how he looked he changed how his hair looked he began to you know change his face his skin color began to change confusion right i was confused by that as a child but then then hip-hop comes onto the scene and at first it was kind of positive or at least it wasn't so negative even though there was negative aspects to it even in the beginning okay this is the truth people go back and listen to it if you listen to the archive uh hip-hop you listen to the albums of hip-hop the beginning the ones that were initially recorded it wasn't all that positive. You got to just look at it from the vantage point. Not a little child who doesn't have intellectual process, but as an adult. Would you want your children listening to that? Would you want your children listening to the early hip hop? Absolutely not. Um, the, the point being is getting into hip hop. Now you start to see this other extreme of male masculinity, and then once you get into gangster rap, you see the extreme extreme example of quote unquote male masculinity, where it becomes extremely misogynistic, extremely abusive. Um, it becomes criminal minded. You get this other extreme. So part of what I'm saying is that those levels of extremities and the fluctuation of those extremities causes a level of cultural confusion. And it makes it even more difficult for young males to gauge where they're at in terms of their own progressions and what they should be inspiring towards in terms of their archetype for manhood. Now, here's the thing that I want people to understand. That the impact of those degrees of fluctuation would not be as great on the young African-American male if his father was in the home functioning as a stable archetype, a positive archetype for his son. The problem is that so for so many of us, African-American males, we did not have 
fathers in the home. And in some cases, the fathers that we did have in the home weren't functioning as men in a sense that they were protective force, protecting us physically, protecting us, uh, our psychological development, protecting our, our, our mentality about things, protecting us from the types of abusive language that's out there in hip hop or the types of uh, misogynistic themes that are being presented in the, the extreme levels of disrespect. We don't have, we didn't have that. So the impact was ultimately the impact of the programming was far more um, prolific and influential. The, the impact was far more influential than it would have been under normal circumstances. So, so I think this is another example of why it's important for us, especially as males coming into, or boys coming into manhood, and then functioning not only as dedicated um, husbands to our wives, but committed fathers to our children, that we take keep this in mind, that ultimately the primary protective force of this type of programming, regardless of what the extremities are, because the notion of my son's dressing like Prince, that's a problem, or dressing like Michael Jackson is a problem, or wearing the jury curl like Michael Jackson, that's a problem. And from my vantage point, in terms of their ability to function as men within the context of a family institution, the notion of them wearing heels like Prince, that's a problem, okay? But, but, but on the opposite extreme, the notion of them calling women bitches and hoes, that's a problem. The notion of them wanting to be, you know, these pseudo gangbangers in the, in, the, in the studios and talking about blasting and killing other African-American males, that extreme, that's a problem. See, so, so part of what I'm saying is that as a man and as a husband, as a father to my children, my, uh, my job is to keep them protected from that type of programming and then give them an example of an archetype that is more respectful. Doesn't mean that I'm perfect, but at least I'm presenting them with something that is not on either one of those extremes. That is coming down the middle and is living a particular lifestyle that is honorable, and they can take the best of that as an example of what they can aspire towards and discard the rest. See, the problem is that so many of us, especially within African American community, we didn't have that, and so the influence that hip hop had on us was far more extreme than perhaps maybe some other other groups of people who were in cultural dynamics, and they they did have fathers in the home that could at least provide them with an alternative archetype that would bring balance to these other extremes that were out there. So this is something that we really got to think about and we got to be clear. But again, brings back to the point that ultimately the responsibility is on the parents. The responsibility is on the mother and the father. And see, the mother and father, the degree to which they can be responsible is, is, is directly related to the degree to which they can establish a positive relationship amongst themselves. So that's why positive relationships should be the goal. In the first place, as men and women establishing positive relationships, it becomes very difficult to establish positive relationships when the very music that you're listening to, hip-hop as an example, it's, it's, it's basically programming to put men and women at war with each other. I call this the male versus female war imprint program. In point of fact, the, the, the lyrical content, just listen to the lyrics. If you listen in terms of the examples that they get, that they give and they provide in regards to male female relationships, the examples are devolved over and over and over again. Well, how does that impact our ability over time when we listen to it over and over and over again for, let's say, 14 years of our lives or 15 years of our lives or 18 or 20, 25? How does that going to impact? our ability and the probability of us being able to establish a positive male-female relationship. These are, again, some critical questions that we can ask. Absolutely, yeah. And then, uh, you know, we're talking about here, I, I would categorize it as weaponized culture. It's, a, it's, it's culture as a weapon, and an, I think it's a, that's important to understand that. And, you know, you could read uh, white papers and stuff that are put out by the, you know, the military-industrial complex and stuff where they... they uh, uh, are conversant on this very same subject, and and they recognize it as a weapon. They call it a weapon, and uh, when you um, you observe what goes on 
with uh, let's say the invasion of Iraq, I mean, one of the you know primary directives is to you know, wipe out cultural landmarks so that you can uh, destabilize uh, the population by removing their uh, you know the familiar. Uh, landmarks and uh, it, it and and begin the process of undoing their culture. That's right. Um, yeah, and then all their uh, males between a certain age are then you know take up arms or, and engaged in the battle, and you know a lot of them are just you know eliminated through you know just being killed. And then uh, and uh, I think another very important phase of the process I think that's underestimated is that uh, and you, and you see this. Uh, uh, portrayed in you know different movies and stuff that you watch about uh, when they're depicting war and stuff like that. Uh, this one movie comes to mind. It, it, it uh, I can't remember the name of it, but anyway, there's you know it's it's, it's depicting uh, American troops in Iraq, and uh, so they're engaging with the locals. And uh, a young boy about 12 years old, uh, he, you know, he runs up to the soldier and says, okay, I, you know, I, I sold all the DVDs you gave me. I you know, need more. And he supplies them with more DVDs, CD, uh, CDs and stuff that are, you know, Western pop culture, uh, mm-hmm. Hollywood and all that stuff. And then, you know, he's very eager to receive these things. And, that, and they're, uh, they're, because they're a, a desired and sought after commodity now in their, uh, in their new uh, economy and everything after their old old uh, um, culture is being, uh, you know, forcibly uh, destroyed and uh, overtly destroyed. And, that, and I, I think it's, it's easy to see in that context of how important it is to then, you know, di- disseminate the, the Western pop culture influences, interject them into the, uh, um, you know, youth culture. You want to go after the youth because that's, you know, they're, they're, they're more susceptible to these sort of things. And then so you have the absentee father out of the home. They were killed in the war. And then you, could, and then you uh, bring in television, you bring in the pop culture, and then those influences will then shape their minds as they, as they grow up, and then they could become uh, a quote unquote uh, democratic, uh, you know, <laughs> whatever, whatever that means, uh, uh, culture. Or society, or you see what I'm saying? Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it, what, part of what you're speaking to is is the use of um, it's not just war, but warfare. Warfare mm-hmm. meaning you know instruments of of um, transforming not only um, the logistical situation in yeah. terms of forces on the ground, but also the psychological situation. So, so if you you give an example, because it's no different than what has been done with hip hop. If, if you take you want to transform a whole a group of people in terms of the cultural aesthetic, what you do is you propagandize. First, you destroy previous cultural dynamics. You do your best to do that. Mm-hmm. That could be like artifacts. That could be um, what was the thing that you gave reference to? Uh, uh, it could be landmarks. Um, it yeah. could be uh, any, anything that that can give a person who lives in that particular location a, a sense of identity, a sense right. of cultural cohesion, a sense of uh, historical. Um, uh, precedence. You right. you begin to eliminate that, but then you also begin to replace that. You replace that with something else. So you hand out DVDs with you know with the other cultural aesthetics that you give. That's also dysfunctional, but you give that in in, in its place. Movies. You give them that. You give them the music. I mean, this is all warfare. I mean, this was even done um, in the Vietnam War. This 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 is not by accident. Well, that's no different, really, ladies and gentlemen. Um, the entertainment industry did not have to take hip hop and globalize it because there's other musical forms. Trust me, that were within the African American community that were just as viable, just as meaningful, and could have been just as influential. But hip hop, in terms of lyrical content, and in terms of the degree of 
cultural transformation that could take place because of lyrical comp, uh, the co content. Hip hop was specifically used, and as a consequence, as an act of psychological warfare, if you will, it has uh, proven to be one of the most um, influential cultural changing musical genres over the last 35 to 40 years, even though it's only been around. But if you even go back, because you, you would have to go back to maybe something like the Beatles, maybe. Yeah. Okay. But, but this is what I'm saying before anything that's beyond, and there's been a lot of other um, uh, genres of music that have come out. I mean, you gave reference to heavy metal had a major impact, but nothing like hip hop in terms of globalized. No, yeah. nothing like this. But if you can imagine this, if you look at this in the context of warfare, if you wanted to stabilize a family unit, hip hop. You want to give young males a negative example of what it means to be a man, hip hop. You want to you want to disrespect women, the life givers, the women who carry these babies and to stabilize the family unit. What do you give them? You give them hip hop. Yep. And I would propose that that's not by accident, ladies and gentlemen. Social engineering at its best or at its worst. Uh, I think uh, hip hop, its popularity in the modern day absolutely dwarfs anything the Beatles ever did. I mean, seriously, man, it's hip-hop's everywhere. Mm -hmm. I And I admit, I like some hip-hop. I, I can't. It's so catchy. It's so... Well, I was a fan, too. I was a fan when I was a child. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm not going to lie. Yeah, my, I don't... Matter, yeah, matter of fact, one of my favorite artists when I was coming up was... Um, uh, what was it? Dougie Fresh and the Get Fresh Crew. <laughs> yeah, but there was a that. What was yeah. the other rapper, though? Um, not Dougie Fresh... What was I can't remember his name right now, but he had this one verse, uh -huh. um, and he was and see th this is what I mean like you know gangster people think that somehow N.W.A. started this no it, it was there in the beginning and and I'm I'm pulling this up because I have to get the rapper's name because this was my this is going back to when I was <laughs> this was when I was a child, uh -huh. um, let's see uh, Doug. E fresh. I'm I'm in uh, Google right now. Everyone, just hold on just a second. <laughs> <laughs> well, while you're doing that, I, is I, I remember, yeah, I think it was junior high, my junior high years for, for a couple of years. Yeah, hip hop was the thing, and generally speaking, everybody was into hip hop. I was into hip hop. I actually had uh, those uh, shoelaces, the big fat shoelaces. Oh I had, yes, had yes. to get those. I had I actually had a pair parachute pants. And all that stuff, and you know, you go to they had Chuck E. Cheese here, and you'd go, and they'd have the 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 break dancing and the whole thing, and that that was just really catching on, and just just you know was a really big deal, and uh, it it um, the lyrics and stuff at that time. Looking back, you had uh, oh, I, I don't know the one guy's name, but. Yeah, some of the names escape me, but uh, yeah, I don't remember the lyrics. There was that uh, uh, one rap group that talked about uh, uh, white lines. That song that was a very popular hit song, and it was it sort of had an anti-drug message, you know, like oh, here's a cautionary tale about drugs. And then yes. they were they, it was it was initially presented that way. It's like oh yeah, we have this you know positive message or some messages were sort of like uh almost kind of neutral and then you know not really a lot of you know sexually overt content or anything like that i, I do remember that it was it was a lot more tame yes. i do remember that and uh yes. and, and it was more kind of stylized there was different styles of it there was like mm -hmm. you'd listen to something else and it didn't sound quite like another thing yes you know? there was more diversity 
like but that, Biz yeah, Markey, you remember that dude? I yeah, I remember Biz Markey. Yeah, right. but what happens tended with, with cultural appropriation, especially within the entertainment industry, what, what tends to happen is the levels of diversity are minimized because what the entertainment industry does is it tends to take one particular genre within, let's say, uh, hip hop, and, and it will it will just it will basically promote that and and basically get as much money as out of it, but then at the expense of all these other, um, let's say, quote unquote, again, I'm using the term loosely, uh, more conscious types of hip hops that wouldn't sell as much, wouldn't sell as much, wouldn't generate as much income. Those are kind of ostracized and put out uh, onto the periphery. So there are people who would listen to that and would hear it, but not to the same degree. So in terms of diversity, by ostracizing, um, ostracizing, let's say, quote unquote, conscious hip hop, you're also limiting its exposure to more people. And therefore, the levels of diversities uh, that is present within hip hop, levels of diversity that is present within hip hop uh, becomes less and less and less. The the um, rapper that I was that was coming to mind, this was, used to be my favorite rapper, was Slick Rick. And he mm-hmm. had this track that I used to listen to called Lottie Dottie. And a lot of us, oh, yeah. we, used to, we used to listen to this and we loved it. I mean, I, used to, I had it all memorized back when I was a child. And I might have been, I don't know, I might have been uh, maybe nine years old. I might have been 10 years old at the time. I might have been eight, to be honest with you. But here's, here's just the, the Lottie Dottie track. I just want to read some of this to you all just to give you guys an example of what I mean in terms of, of a lack of, of critical thinking. As a child, I didn't think anything of this. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, Let's see. Okay. Let's see. So what became the time? Okay. I woke up around 10 o'clock in the morning, gave myself a stretch, a morning yawn, and went to the bathroom to wash up, had some soap on my face and my hands upon the cup. I said, mirror, mirror on the wall. Who is the top choice of them all? There was a rumble dumble five minutes. It lasted. The mirror said, you are a conceited bastard. I thought it says, why are you conceited bastard? Yo. Okay. Um, yo, that's true. That's why we never have no beef. So then I washed off the soap and brushed the gold teeth. Here we go. Use oil of Olay because my skin gets pale. Then I got the files for my fingernails. What's going on here? (laughs) True to the style on my behalf, I put the bubbles in the tub so I could have a bubble bath. Clean, dry was my body and hair. I threw on my brand new Gucci underwear. Really? (laughs) For For all the girls I might take home. Okay, sexual promiscuity. Yeah. I got the Johnson's baby powder and the polo cologne. Fresh dressed like a million bucks through on the valley shoes and the fly green socks stepped out the house stop short. Oh, no. I went back in, forgot the Kango. Then I dilly dally. I ran through an alley, bumped into an old girl, Sally from the valley. This was a girl playing hard to get. So I said, what's wrong? Because she looked upset. She said, oh, it's all because of you. Say what? I'm feeling sad and blue. She said, you went away. And now my life is filled with rainy days. I haven't said this in such a long time, but I remember this when I was a child. See, this yeah. is the program here. I'm, I'm 39 years old. I'm about to be 40. And I still remember this like like it was yesterday. This, this is what I mean by the program. We got to be very careful about this. And I love you so how much you'll never know because you took your love away from me. Now, that's now what was I to do? She's crying over me and she was feeling blue. I said, don't cry. Dry your eye. Here comes your mother with those two little guys, meaning there's some young boys there. Her her mean mother steps and says to me, hi, hit Sally in the face and decked her in the eye. Meaning the mother begins to inflict physical uh, abuse onto her daughter. Pushed her in the uh, pushed, punched her in the belly and stepped on her feet, slammed the child on the hard concrete. The bitch was strong. The kids was gone. I mean, the children ran away. Something was wrong. I said, what was going on? I tried to break it up. I said, stop it. Leave her. She said, if I can't have you, she can't either. This is the mother talking to Slick Rick. Mm. She grabbed me closely by my socks, so I broke the hell out like I had the chicken pot, meaning he ran away from her. But, oh, she gave chase. She caught up quick. She put a finger in the face of MC Rick and said, so we can go cruising in my OJ. And what? I give you all my love today. What? Ricky, Ricky, Ricky. Um, 
someone sometime Ricky 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 uh, somehow your words just hypnotize me and I just love your jazzy ways yo MC Rick my love is here to stay almost done and on and on and on she kept on the bitch been around before my mother's born uh, I said, yeah. I said, cheer up. I gave her a kiss. I said, you can't have me. I'm too young for you, miss. She says, no, you're not. Then she starts crying. I says, I'm 30. Really? He says, I I'm 19. Uh, she says, stop lying. I said, I am. Go ask my mother. Uh, and with your wrinkle and with your wrinkled pussy, I can't be your lover to the TikTok, And you don't stop to the TikTok. You don't hit it. Ladies and gentlemen, this was before N.W.A. Mm. You see, the, the language and the, the types of themes and just the levels of disrespect and, you know, the, your wrinkled pussy, like who says that? And again, in the absence of having a father in the home to keep me shielded and protected, my mother could only do so much. She was raising five children by herself. There's only in working. OK, mm. my father was right. a drug addict and crackhead. I mean, there's only so much. He was an alcoholic. There's only so much that my mother could do. This began became ingrained inside of my subconscious mind. This mm. programming. And here I am 39 years later, and I remember the cadence as if it was yesterday. I haven't looked at this, and I don't know how long, and I know I know the cadence, and it comes back to me so easily. Why? Because I listen to it over and over and over and over and over again. Now, you take just this. This is one song. Just imagine you take just one song, and then now you superimpose this song, but you make it even far worse and far more egregious, and then you put it on a whole album like N.W.A.'s first album or the second or the third and fourth album, and then you rewind it and repeat it and keep listening to it over and over and over again. How much of an impact, if it has the impact that it has today where I can recite it and I, it comes back to mind, the cadence and so forth comes right back to mind here. And I'm 39 years old. Here we are, like, I don't know, 30 years later. And it comes back to, to, to my mind so easily. Well, what type of an impact does music, does a music of NWA have and has had on individuals who listen to it over and over and over again? This is why a critical analysis is key. This also proves the point that in terms of the disrespect of women and males being projected, African-American males in particular, or black males in particular, as these sexual beasts who are out here living these sexually promiscuous lifestyles, being projected as a norm, it's been around far longer than what we think. And, and again, just because we see it in NWA doesn't mean that it started there. Just because we see it in Stick Rick, which predates um, uh, NW doesn't mean that it started there because again, you can go back to the, to the blues. You can also go back to the minstrel shows and the minstrel shows. It was there too, but everything was symbolic. Even the concept of rock and roll, that's symbolic. What is rock and roll exactly? Rock and roll is a, is a, is a covert uh, way of saying having sexual intercourse. People think about it. That's why you listen to the songs. I'm on a rock. I'm on a rock with you all night. What are we talking about? Exactly. A lot of people thought that we're dancing. No, they're not dancing. They want to rock with you all night. They're talking about having sex with you. Yeah. So, so again, the programming has been there for a long, long time. The difference, though, though, I think is as we progress as a society, the programming has gotten even more and more egregious. And as a result, the cultural influence, getting back to what we talked about in the beginning, has become more and more egregious. Yeah, it, it went from kind of sly, crafty, kind of uh, suggestive lyrics to very over-explicit uh, declarations that are, uh, you know, repeated over and over. So, yeah, it always has to start kind of uh, innocuous appearing enough and then uh, make that transformation over time. Yeah, see that over and over and over again with all this stuff. It, that's how it, it, it just... You know, it, it, it's, you got, you got to top the next guy and be harder. Your lyrics got to be harder. Your your uh, aggressive posture, everything's got to be more intense, and your aura's got to be more intense. You're you're the baddest rapper on the block, and then the mm -hmm. next guy's got to top you, and he's got to talk about stuff that you won't talk about, and then 
uh, it just progresses from there. A, a, a devolution instead of a, a, a progression towards anything you know, more positive. It's like that's that's the uh, direction. Like all this stuff seems to take in one form or, or another. Um, yeah, it's just uh, uh, just just common theme throughout a lot of a lot of our uh, culture. And uh, you know, same thing with comedy. Same thing with uh, just about any kind of uh, entertainment venue you can. Uh, can mention, you know, at movies, you know, they have to kind of get progressively more uh, uh, explicit, more mm-hmm. uh, television profane. shows too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all of that yep. has to just, you know, continue to, you know, like they they admit, you know, if you listen to how these people talk that are kind of in in, in industry insiders, they you know they call it pushing the envelope. We got to push the envelope. Yes. We got to push yes. the envelope. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, that's they are. Uh, uh, a lot of them are expressly, openly, you know, cultural Marxist, and they they would just love to see the just absolute dissolution of the family altogether. They just despise the family, and uh, and they don't make much of a uh, uh, effort to really conceal that in in a lot of uh, uh, examples you can point to. You know, so yeah, it's uh, it's just more and more extreme, and that's that's the way it's kind of progressing, but. I, I, I wanted to get your take on something that's uh, going back to uh, John brought it up earlier. This post that uh, you know John's been contributing him, and he's sending me stuff. I put it on there, and other people have sent me stuff. And you know the the coordination of the media in with certain events, like uh, you know he gave the examples of the uh, you know Trayvon Martin verdict being coordinated with uh, a release of a of a film that has you know uh, race racial themes and all that, and uh, you know I, I got to thinking about this uh, in the the context of you know what is happening and with you know what what are the different uh, narratives that are being pushed out there, and you know what what might what what possibly might this all kind of be uh, leading to as far as what, how's it going to, you know, when it reaches a, a crescendo, what is, what is going to be the end uh, quote unquote event. And I'm not the, um, I, I don't want to claim that I've, you know, I'm, I'm the first person to uh, make this conjecture here, but uh yeah, the the assassination of, of Barack Obama. I mean, people have been talking about that for a long time. Like they think that is something that is uh, a plausible future event based on a lot of stuff that's being put out there. You know, you, these this predictive programming in the media and all this other stuff. And then you know, one big thing is for some reason I couldn't. I was puzzled by it uh, initially, but it's like, why are they? Uh, uh, incessantly making this comparison of Obama to Abraham Lincoln, you know, it's like I, I just I, I don't really understand that drawing that comparison. And there's been like this agitprop uh, art that is put out there, and it's got Obama and an Abraham Lincoln beard, and you know, it's, it's it's evocative of Lincoln, and they're comparing him to Lincoln, and he's the new Lincoln. And uh, well, you know, Lincoln was assassinated, and he 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 allegedly was uh, an important, prominent figure in you know uh, the you know so-called civil rights or you know emancipation of the slaves and all that. So I I just wonder how you know if 
that's possible that that that's going to be some kind of future event and then that can be uh neatly integrated with this you know anti-gun sentiment that of course is being uh really heavily promoted with all these hoaxed shooting events and uh yeah, I just wonder what your take was on that. Not to make a prediction, because I don't like to make predictions, but I, I, it just seems like when you see all these different arrows kind of pointing to the same general direction, it, it just, <laughs> you got to wonder. Yes, well, I have a saying, and, and I apply this to any given proposition. First thing, I mean, I always engage in critical analysis, and I never allow emotions to, to um, supersede proper intellectual process. So oftentimes, you know, let's, let's say something like global financial collapse. When it's proposed, it's really emotion-driven and it's based out of fear. So people react not intellectually to to the proposition. So they don't engage in proper intellectual process. They basically react emotionally. Right. Um, so whenever something is proposed, what I tend to do, in the first place, I don't react emotionally. But in the second place, you know, I engage in proper intellectual process. But then I also have a saying. And I, and I apply this to any given proposition. That time always tells the truth. So if we want to figure out whether or not something was true, especially if we don't have any power to change whether or not something's going to take place, then right. let's see what takes place. Let's see what unfolds, and time will always tell the truth. Some of the time will either prove what we thought was going to happen to be true, or it's going to prove that it wasn't going to, that it wasn't true. Um, this is to say that, just intellectually speaking, let's take that's the way that I would dissect the proposition of, let's say, um, Barack Obama being assassinated is um, at this point. Um, I mean, because he's almost out of office. Mm-hmm. How much how much time does he have left in order for this for this assassination to take place? That's the first thing that I would propose. <laughs> OK, how much time would how much time would this within what time period would this supposed assassination have to take place in order for it um, while he's in office? I would look at that. Um, I would also ask the question, why what at what what benefit would it would it have for him to be assassinated? Like at this point, I mean, because he's been in office for five, what, four or five, six, seven, eight, eight, eight and a half, a little bit. Yeah. Eight and a half years now. Okay, that's a long time. Why not five years ago? Why not seven years ago? Why not? Uh, why not? Uh, you know, three months ago. So we can ask that question too. But then I would also ask the question: What evidence do we have? Clear-cut evidence that will that that we can we can actually you know analyze. Okay, this means something that's tangible that will lead us to conclude that it's even possible, or, or that it's it's probable. I should say because anything is possible, but that it's probable that he would be assassinated. And to be honest with you, I don't have any evidence to, to, to suggest that he would be. Um, the other thing is that um, it, it, the notion of it taking place now, I, the, the only way that I can see it as being like, you know, as part of like a bigger plan is it being tied to a lot of the race-based programming that we see in the news right about now. And a lot of that race-based programming, race is a preeminent issue, too. There's race, there, there's religion. Um, and then there's terrorism and there's sexual orientation. Those four things are the major themes. But the one that, especially in the United States of America, that always takes precedence is the issue of race. Um, something like the assassination of, of, of the president would tie to issues like police brutality, would tie to issues such as these are all media driven issues, too, by the way, right. uh, issues such as um, uh, Black Lives Matter. It would, it would tie to the Confederate flag, these types of things. Right. Okay, so these are just some of the questions that I would ask. But again, what I would always go back to is evidence and proof, Mm. um, proper intellectual process, and then, of course, being patient enough to let time tell the truth. Now, here's the other thing, that when you allow time to tell the truth, there should be 
a reassessment of things in the aftermath of something either taking place or not taking place. So this is for, this is for a lot of you uh, individuals out there who may be, let's say you listen to someone like Alex Jones or you listen to someone like David Icke or, um, I mean, because I, I studied all of them. I read all the David Icke's books except his last two. And that's a lot of reading because his books were so thick. And I've seen all the videos, reptilian videos, reptilian shapeshifter videos with Credo Mutua. <laughs> I, even re- I even went and read Credo Mutua's books, which are much more thicker than um, uh, David Icke's books. So when we talk about doing the mm. research and doing the analysis, I've already gone through all of that. And most of you people out there, maybe you're hearing this and you're saying, yeah, but you don't know what you're talking about. You're an agent. I'm telling you right now, I, I, it's probable, okay, that I know a whole lot more than you do. And in point of fact, you can go to my website, linenonofilms.com, and I have documentaries that speak about all these things. The point that I want to make here is that um, time always tells the truth. And we have to go back and reassess the individuals that we listen to who caused us to accept certain possibilities that didn't pan out. So let me give an example of what I mean. Um, as an example, we can use, let's, because uh, one of the, he, he's prolific with this, um, that is um, Alex Jones. He's proposed so many doomsday-like scenarios. I remember even with the, with the BP oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico, I did a documentary on that, the BP oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico, um, media mind control, the BP oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. I encourage everyone to go, go look at that. Um, he proposed a lot of, conspiratorial, doomsday-like scenarios dealing with the BP oil spill, including that uh, Barack Obama was going to use nuclear weapons to seal the oil head. Now, in, ret- in retrospect, that sounds outlandish. Yeah. Okay, but however, during that time, because of the emotional, and again, there's the emotions and all the fear, the frenzy, and the media frenzy that was taking place, and all the fear that was derived, people weren't thinking intelligently, and there were people who began to think that somehow Barack Obama was going to use nuclear weapons to seal the oil, and that's just one of the propositions. He also said that Corexit was being used, and because Corexit was going to be used, that millions of people, potentially hundreds of thousands, the millions of people were going to get sick and die. Did that take place? Time told the truth. That did not take place. So whatever the case may be, global financial collapse, uh, um, what is the other one, uh, martial law, all of these doomsday-like propositions, when they're proposed, you've got to ask the critical question. I'm not saying that the assassination of Barack Obama is a, uh, Obama is a doomsday-like scenario, but what I'm saying is that any given proposition, let time tell the truth. Be patient enough to do that and don't get all emotional about it. And then if it doesn't pan out, go back and reassess your relationship to those who made these propositions, including someone like Alex Jones. Because if you go back and you look at all of the things that he proposed over the last decade and a half, mm. 95%, at least 95% of what he proposed that was going to take place has not come to pass. Now, I don't know where y'all come from and how y'all do things you know, in your life. But if someone tells me something and 95% of the time it's untrue, I don't consider that person as a viable, uh, 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 you know, source of information. Right. What I, what I would see that person as is a liar. That's just me being honest. I would see mm. that person as a liar, a propaganda artist, someone who is lying about things. And if that is the case, based upon critical, uh, critical thinking and a proper intellectual process and analysis, then you have to reassess your relationship. I'll tell you all right now, I don't follow people like Alex Jones. I followed him for two months, and it was enough for me to know, okay, that that was not the path for me. See, once people begin to make propositions and they don't come to pass, and over and over again, you have to begin to reassess your relationship to them. And the notion of me sticking with someone who 90% is, is you know, subtle, you know, things don't come to pass, that means that there are 90% lies. If it's 50%, that still that means that they're a liar. If it's 25%, 
That means that it's every time they say something, that means that there's a 25% chance that they're lying to you. I don't know about how other people do this, the listeners, how you live your life, but where I come from, I, I believe, and, and this is just my personal belief, that we should not be out here propagandizing yeah. conspiratorial theories that are not backed by uh, evidence or proof that put people in a state of fear without any evidence or proof. And then when it doesn't take place, we should have enough uh, courage, we should have enough ethic. Uh, ethical principle and, and, and moral aptitude to go back and say, hey, look, I want to apologize for proposing that somehow nuclear weapons was going to be used yeah. to sell the oil, oil well heads or that somehow massive amounts of people were going to die because of Corexit, that Corexit was being used yeah. for, during the BP oil spill to go from Mexico. So, again, people, we got to think quickly about this. Time always tells the truth. Let's be patient and see what time tells. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's important, you know, and then you know, bringing this subject matter up. Um, yeah, that's that's important to emphasize that uh, you know I I'm not proposing that 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 is going to happen. I, I know there's probably some, like you might hear some stuff out there that say, oh yeah, it's a guarantee. That's all. It's all kind of in the cards, and it, you know that's it's like yeah, I, yeah. I think that's an important point not to uh, be out here saying that oh yeah, this is coming. Everybody, just wait for it, and you know. Uh, I'm predicting it, and it's going to be uh, a sure thing. But from another perspective, um, so it, as we're out here analyzing this stuff, and 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 we know with a pretty high degree of certainty, based on you know a mountain of what mainly circumstantial evidence that uh, you know these these events are coordinated, and uh, there's a lot of aspects of them that uh, would lead. Uh, I believe a re- to a reasonable conclusion that these are fake and hoaxes, and they're almost uh, it, they could be analogous to like a a, a production or a, or a movie, but that it, that is instead of being in a, a theater and and contextualized within a fictional framework, it's actually being then taken and contextualized as if and presented as if it's real. Yes. And, uh, and if and if Barack Obama is quote unquote assassinated, I would naturally assume that the whole thing was just a made-for-television drama that is another example of something that is a fiction that is being presented as real. I would, if I heard about it, I'd say, well, I could, I now know that the, 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 the character actor known as Barack Obama is probably most likely alive and well somewhere. That, that would be my first initial impression. I, I would not think that, okay, a man that is our quote-unquote president or leader is dead. See, I, I wouldn't bring into it all the baggage that the average person has, yes. uh, for one thing. So, um, But I think that if like you're kind of looking at all these media events and then maybe uh, trying to examine, like, okay, where could these possibly be uh, leading to? Uh, what process are we being... Uh, what process are we undergoing as these quote-unquote events are unfolding and what what uh, and it seems like oh well you know the whole objective is to get gun control gun control and they haven't been effective in doing that and you got to wonder why they just don't go ahead and pass laws to you know uh confiscate guns or heavily restrict them or something like that because i i believe they certainly could uh, but see, then again, I don't know if there's like a real opposition that will really, you know, that would really spin off into cascade out into problems. But I, but I think what it would have to be predicated upon is some real solidifying, uh, world-shattering sort of uh, event that kind of gives substantiation 
yes, and of course. wait to the claims of the of the uh, gun control advocacy groups, and then uh, and then also be an event like, like you said they want to incorporate race, incorporate police, you know, brutality, and incorporate mm-hmm. all of these other things, and then really. Um, I could see something like that, and it would be a hoax, and it would be fake, and it would generate this um, validation mm-hmm. of the opposition in such an such an extreme way. I, I, I just I, it, that that's what I'm looking at it from the perspective of. I'm not really saying yeah, well, no, this no, is that, absolutely going to happen. Yes, yes, and that's what that's what I mean by again. Um, Tom always tells the truth. And the other thing is this, and yeah. I think this is important for us to outline it, and that is that. Um, even a, a, a hoax, I mean, something that, that is, isn't even, doesn't even happen can still have an impact. <laughs> okay. Oh, yeah. Because even if it doesn't happen, but you, you, you know, people believe that it happened, it still has the same impact. You see? Yeah. Um, so let me, let me give you an example. Um, I, I mean, um, let's even go back. Let's go back to September. I mean, we're just a couple of days from September 11th. That's why in the news you see a lot of uh, propaganda in terms of ISIS. You see propagandas about plane problems and plane crashes, this type of thing. And this happens every single year. Um, but we can go back to September 11th and out of what took place on September 11th, whatever version of, of what people perceive it to, to, to be. Again, I talk about this in my book, the, the 911 Fear-Based Mind Control Program. Um, irrespective of what people believe took place on that day, the same in terms of what has taken place as a consequence of what took place on that day cannot be denied. Okay. In other words, you know, going into other countries and and just, you know, ravaging, you know, and then, you know, all the propaganda about Muslim extremists and see, cause, cause Al Qaeda could not have become this globalized force all of a sudden that, you know, everyone is fearful unless September 11th happened. It was blamed on Al Qaeda and Osama bin Laden. (laughs) In the absence of that, no one gives a shit about Osama bin Laden and Al Qaeda. Okay. Okay. So, so, so we, and so, and the thing is that we don't have any substantial evidence to prove that Al Qaeda carried out the attacks uh, that we saw play itself out on the television screen or, you know, what, what have you, or that, uh, that Osama bin Laden was the mastermind. There's no evidence to prove this whatsoever. But if the story is told and they say that they're, these are the people who are, who are, uh, the culprits, then it's, it still has the same impact, even though right. in, in terms of what we were told was, was not true. So now let's fast forward because here's another example. The assassin, the supposed, Using the term supposed assassination of Osama bin Laden. See, there's no mm-hmm. way that you can you can bring in ISIS as this new major threat unless you diminish the previous threat. And how do you diminish the previous threat? Well, you did, you begin to talk about all of these Al Qaeda leaders that you killed. You don't have any evidence or proof of this, but there, and there's so many right. leaders. It's amazing. Every single week, at a certain point, like every <laughs> single week, there's a new Al Qaeda leader that was killed. Okay, wow. Well, where's the evidence to prove this? None. Can you show me video of this? No. Can you show me pictures? No. But you accept it as being true because Mita told you. Right. So, so what you do is, is you have to eliminate Osama bin Laden, and therefore, because he's eliminated, Al Qaeda is weakened, and therefore, there's this new threat that, that can begin to present itself. Oh, I, uh, you know, i.e., ISIS. Now, here's the thing. If I ask anyone who's listening here, if I ask you intellectually, set the emotions aside and all the emotions of September 11th that's associated with Osama bin Laden, we've been played on this called the 911 Free Base Mind Control Program for the last 14 years, ladies and gentlemen. Again, we're coming up here on September 11th, and on September 11th, you see all these retrospectives and all they be talking about Al Qaeda and assassination of Osama bin Laden and the Twin Towers and all of this stuff that comes back up. And this is just reprogramming people to keep you all emotional. Set the emotions aside. And if I ask you the question, what evidence and proof? that is conclusive, that is tangible and real, do you have to prove that Osama bin Laden was assassinated? <laughs> Nothing. Nothing. Not yeah. one iota. Well, I saw the picture. Did you see any pictures? No. But I saw the video. Did you see any video? No. 
Uh-uh. Well, they said, well, that's hearsay. That wouldn't stand up in a court of law just because someone says something. See, now what, pe- what, what took place in terms of Osama bin Laden was they gave people computer-generated images in uh-huh. place of evidence and proof, and people accepted that as being true. That's mind control. See, that's in the absence of critical analysis and critical thinking. You'll accept a computer-generated image, and again, this was, and they said virtual view, okay, ABC, this was how this was propagandized as taking place. They throw his body off into the sea. Okay, it's done with. No, ridiculous story. No <laughs> evidence or proof whatsoever, and yet the vast majority of us accept it as being true. Now, what takes place out of as a consequence of us accepting this illusion as being true without any evidence or proof? Now you can bring in ISIS. Because yeah. Al-Qaeda is no longer as much of a threat. It's still a threat, but not as much. But now you can bring in this new threat, ISIS, without any evidence or proof of this. Okay, and then now ISIS is beheading people. Have you seen any actual heads being severed? I'm talking about the process of a head being severed. No, uh-huh. you have not. What you did see was someone take uh-huh. a knife to a certain person's head and start chopping away, and the did person whose, whose head is being chopped it has no reaction to it. How is that possible? Did he you doesn't s- scream in pain. His body doesn't quench uh-huh. up. He doesn't try to fight to get away. He just stands there, and then the, the screen cuts. Okay, <laughs> and then after that, you see this body, what we are to accept as being a body with a head on, set, set back on the back. Okay, this is a beheading. Are we sure? Did we see a beheading? No. See, the, the point that I'm making here is that you can create... This whole new terror group, out of an illusion that was, an, was this, of this other terror group that was an illusion called Al Qaeda. <laughs> okay, yeah. you can create an illusion out of an illusion, the assassination of Osama bin Laden, another illusion. You can create a, this new uh, terrorist group, and then you give the illusion that they're out here chopping off heads. Yeah. Oh wow, these guys are even worse than, Os- than Osama bin Laden and Al Qaeda. See, now what happens is that this fur- this is further justification for continued uh, military action around the world, see, coming out of an illusion. So the point that I'm making is that even if something is not true, but is accepted as being true, it can still have the same effect. Same thing applies to something that say like you know the the, the proposition that Osama, uh, Osama bin Laden uh, that uh, Barack Obama is assassinated. Even yeah. if, if if they propose it as taking place, but there's no evidence to prove that it's take that it actually took place because it can be proposed. Media has the power to propose any given thing as being true. The same, even if it's not true, it can still have the same effect. So this is what I mean by right. medium manipulation. That's why we always have to be patient to let time tell the truth, and then we always demand evidence and proof. Computer-generated images that Osama bin Laden was was uh, assassinated is not conclusive evidence and proof. Just because someone says that he was uh, assassinated, that's nothing more than hearsay. That's not evidence and proof. If it would stand up in a court of law, why would you accept it as, as standing up within the, 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 the mind of public opinion? We have to think critically, more critically about that as a collective, as a group of people, as a world community. We have to think critically about any given claim. Again, be patient, let time tell the truth, and always demand evidence and proof. And the absence of evidence and proof in the context of proper intellectual process and critical thinking, we can't accept any given assertion as being true, whether that's Osama bin Laden being assassinated, whether that be al-Qaeda as this ruthless terrorist organization determined to rule the world, G.I. Joe, real American hero, whether it's ISIS, whether it's Osama, or here we go again, whether it's Barack Obama, his, his, you know, him being assassinated, again, time tells the truth, but yeah. make sure that you engage in critical analysis and always demand evidence and proof. Absolutely, yeah. That's, that's critical, I think, that... Uh that we do that and uh, yeah i mean it it it's yeah and i think it's important to remember too it's all about it's all about managing perceptions you know the event doesn't have to be the event itself doesn't have to be anything that actually had an impact in on uh, in real life it just has to give the impression that it did and then 
Yeah, and since you know, you, I really, I really don't take uh, film footage as proof. I really don't take uh, photographs as proof. Um, the only thing that really I, I think is a good tool is to uh, critically think about and analyze the claims being presented, you know, individually, and you know, see how they line up. See, see, how, uh, check for inconsistencies and like yes. what, what are some things that just don't make any damn sense whatsoever. Yes, and then, and then, and then uh, work from issue, there. And then there's the issue of relevancy, you know, because even if you determine that something actually took place. Based upon what your your you know your research, you have you have to ask the question of whether or not it's really relevant to your life. And a lot of the things that we perceive to be relevant, it's not relevant. For instance, all the police brutality cases that it's not relevant to my life. It's simply not. And, and I'm a quote unquote what people would call a quote unquote African American. It's not relevant to me. Some people would say, yeah, but you have sons. Yeah, but I'm raising my sons in a very particular way, and I will train them how to interact with police officers. There's a way that you, and again, right or wrong, whether or not it's legitimate that we should have to or not, that's not the point. The point is that I'm, I'm going to raise my sons that, that they can interact with police officers so they can minimize the probability of something taking place that would be undesirable. The other thing right. is I'm, I'm raising them in such a way to where they're not engaged in criminal activity. Again, people have to understand that it's magnetizing effect that when you're engaged in criminal activity, it's going to magnetize onto you certain types of experiences. Okay, you, you're more, it's, it's more probable that you're going to have certain types of experiences. So what I'm doing with my sons is making sure that I raise them not to have a criminal mind because it makes a huge difference. Again, people don't like to talk about this, especially in the African-American community because we just want to say that somehow all these police officers are racist and they're all out here to kill us. No, the people who are killing African-American folk the most are African-American people. The people who are raping African-American uh, girls and, and women the most are African-American uh, males. The people who are abandoning African-American families the most are African-American men. The people who are engaged in all types of nefarious uh, activities within African-American community are African-American people. But we don't want to look at that. Instead, we want to Externalized power onto police officers, and we'll take examples that media pro uh, projects, and then now we right. make this this grand claim that somehow all these police officers are racist and they're all out here to kill us. That's simply not true. In point of fact, when my father, who was an African American male, was beating the shit out of my mother, it was the police officers who had to come to save my mama not an African-American male. So let's be clear about this. Again, a lot of this is media-driven. The point that I want to make here when we talk about media manipulation and we talk about uh, a proper intellectual process is that ultimately we have to have evidence to prove to any given claim. And, and one of the things you brought up is that these days, because of where technology it is, where technology is, we have to be even more critical because with the, with the advent of CGI, computer-generated images, with oh, yeah. Photoshop, okay, with Photoshop, with productions that can be put out, that can be created with, within a matter of, of days because of where technology is, that can present a hoax to people. Uh, to people and people will accept it as being true we have to be even more critical i mean nowadays they can take a actual video footage of an event and they can superimpose other things into the video footage so the video yeah. footage may be one thing but they can actually super and this could this has been going on for a long time y'all need to go see the film wag the dog this is mm -hmm. no joke because a lot of what people accept as being true and how things are being spun by media is based upon media's ability and the technological advances that media's media have access to to manipulate the photographs to manipulate the video footage yeah. and in, in many cases to manipulate the audio so this is to say that even sometimes what you see and that is presented as evidence or proof in video format you can't take it face value and the pictures that you see, you simply can't take at face value. Like you said, look for the inconsistencies. Look right. for things that don't make much sense. Look at those things before you, you ultimately ascertain or decide whether or not if, if any given story is true. Again, when it comes to media, it is better to be critical and engage in critical analysis as opposed to simply accepting thing, things as being true because a vast majority of what is being presented through the media is not true. And then there's the next level. Even if it is true, we have to ask the question whether or not it is really relevant to you in your life. Yeah, well put. Well put. Yeah, I totally agree. 
Uh, yeah, I see. And then photographs and film have never been evidence for anything. If you kind of look back into the history, like when the very first, uh, according to when, you know, uh, Thomas Edison was, you know, had, was instrumental in, according to legend, was instrumental in inventing the film camera. And one of the first films he made was Mary Queen of Scott getting her head chopped off. It's like way back in the day, man, they were chopping heads off on film. And then I'm sure many people watch that and said, oh, my God, she got her head cut off. It's like they just did the stop motion thing. I mean, you mm-hmm. can, we recognize it readily now, so we're, we're so familiarized with like, oh, okay, just stop the camera. Bring in a dummy, and then like, and then you see the telltale jump or cut, it, cut. That's edit. right. Mm-hmm. They, I just topping off yeah. head, same thing. Mm-hmm. But people didn't know what that was back then because film was a brand new medium. That's right. So That's they right. Were totally fool people, and I think yes. that was that, that was an, a very very early test run, and you know they had plausible deniability because they said, oh yo no we got yeah we we it, we faked it, and then it's like of course, but then they put they could put it out there and let it kind of disseminate out, and then mm-hmm. um, if no one's there to explain it's fake and then people are totally unfamiliar with the media and they and they're they're going to assume that what they're seeing is a a real depiction of of reality and yeah they're chopping heads off back then Mm -hmm. now see now now you can look at that now because of what we're adding we understand technological advance advancement we can understand media and you can see it for what it is but you know what there will be a day who knows 40 50 years from now where people will look back at things like osama bin laden assassin osama bin laden they'll even look at september 11 2001 they'll also look at um isis and the beheadings and they'll say why did these people believe in the official stories of these these particular events because to them where technology will be at in their levels of understanding in terms of technological advancement their understanding of technological advances here in 2015 they'll have a different perspective they'll understand in terms of media manipulation and, and, and because of where it'll be at they, at that point they're going their understanding of, of these lesser forms that we're experiencing on a different level Mm-hmm. And, and see again, it's, it's a trickle down effect. What we what we see in those early films, um, you know, of people getting their heads chopped up, we can tell that it was fake. But that's because of what we've seen uh, since that time. Like all yeah. of the technological advancement, well, there'll be a day again where people uh, in the future they will look back at things like the supposed assassination of Osama bin Laden. They'll be like, why do people believe in? There's no evidence or proof of this. Or they'll look at. I mean, there's all kinds of things. We can look at many different quote unquote hoaxes that, that people buy in today, buy into today. And then people uh, in the future, they'll look back and say, why did those people believe in, in those things? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, well, I, well hopefully, uh, you know, we won't, we won't go. Did you see the ISIS video where they allegedly blew up some dudes that were sitting on the ground and they blew them up with landmines? Did you see no, that? No, no, I haven't seen that. That was pure, com- I mean, it, not comedy, but it was just ridiculous. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, if, I was tell I was I was listening to another uh, it was Noah Jin show I was listening to it and they were talking about oh yeah did you see that one I you know and then Adam Curry he 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 pointed out that the uh, the beheadings are fake and all that but he's saying oh I, I looked at this one I think this is real so it kind of prompted me to go look at it because otherwise I wouldn't even pay attention to you know, that garbage but so I, I I pull it up and I'm looking at it okay so they're sitting there and then the, you see the it, it, okay you're waiting waiting okay there's an explosion. The explosion happens, and then the explosion, the uh, detritus and everything that's coming up from the ground as a result of the explosion, um, comes up and, and, and obscures the people setting down. In other words, like what you should have seen was like an immediate impact on, on the, the, the bodies, like immediately, like in, instantaneously. 
But you, instead, you see, oh, a big explosion, and boom, like it obscures their uh, your view of them, and then it does a cut edit, and then you see like pieces of body mm-hmm. parts falling from the sky. Yeah, cut and edit. It, mm-hmm. it's, it's a cut. It was like a, just a, a plain as day cut edit, and uh, I don't know why Adam Curry didn't see it, but I was like, I, I just noticed it right away. I said, that was just a, a cut edit, and they like they they did a layering where they put the explosion and they, they and they uh, uh, it's real easy to do they splice uh, you know i've done editing and stuff myself yeah i have too it's very yeah. easy nowadays oh it's right. so easy to to, yeah. to spoof something and like mm-hmm. I, I don't even have the real higher end tools to do it and i have some kind of rudimentary stuff and i could and i guess still yeah, I, I pull off something that's yeah i work with um, adobe premiere pro and there's all and that's just one pro i mean there's so many other more oh more man advanced. you could there's you could do it up without yeah you could um, really do something up with that one yeah, yeah. The, the thing i want to say too is that nowadays it's so easy for um you know media to take any given event whether it's real or fake and blame it on anyone so a lot of the things that are, that, that are actually taking place it can just simply be blamed on isis I mean, there's no evidence to prove that proves that you know. Okay, uh, ISIS actually did this, but they can they can blame any given thing in, in the absence of any evidence proof. So we can say, yeah, well, can you show me ISIS actually doing this? No, ISIS just destroyed this uh, these artifacts, this museum. They destroyed this uh, this temple. Uh, they destroyed this church. What have you? Okay, yeah, they show a church that's been destroyed, but we don't know if that's footage. If that footage was from 1980, 1985, 1999, <laughs> or 2005, we don't. We have no idea. And then, in, in point of fact, we don't actually see "quote unquote" ISIS destroying anything. So that's what I mean. While we have to ask critical questions, and nowadays, what tends to happen is any a mass media will take any given event, if, if, whether it's real or not, but in particular the events that actually do take place, and just blame it on ISIS. It may be some some other totally different group, or it may not even be a group. It may be some crazy person who just shot something up. But you'll say just blame it on ISIS. So what it does is it fortifies in people's minds that ISIS is this active force, this new Al Qaeda. I'm gonna tell you all one of the things that's gonna happen at some point is that ISIS will they're gonna say something like ISIS and Al Qaeda have joined forces and formed Voltron. And then now they're <laughs> now the ass kicking is really gonna be insane because it's going to be crazy. Okay. It's only a matter of time because script writing and that's the other thing I call this a double motion picture store uh, oh, show. Hold on, hold on man. Did you say Voltron? Yeah they're gonna form they're gonna form Voltron and then then all then then everyone's ass is gonna be in trouble. Wasn't uh, that wasn't that a like a Japanese <laughs> <laughs> a Japanese toy bag, and then the, like you would combine the pieces and that's make right. the big robot. That's right. You make the big robots. There are all the different lines. You combine <laughs> them together. That's going to be part of the storyline at a certain point. Okay, because right yeah. now they've been talking about they've been vying for control. Who has more authority? Who has more control? Al Qaeda versus ISIS, and now some ISIS members are fighting. I even had a story that came out like three days ago where they were talking about this this general. Again, this is all propaganda because we're getting into September 11th in a couple of days. Yeah. This um, this military uh, general was saying how you know it's possible that we can use Al Qaeda to fight against ISIS. What what are you what are you saying? This is an actual article, ladies and gentlemen, on uh, on uh, Yahoo News. This and I, I was like, are we are we serious here? But but at right. some point they'll say that that they're combining forces. So now they become this super duper threat. They're Voltron now. Oh, yeah. This is just script writing. It's, it's totally ridiculous. And no evidence to prove the back end of it up. But again, you have to provide people with a boogeyman in the closet at all times because so long as you provide them with a boogeyman in the closet, people will always be in fear. And as long as you keep them in a state of fear, they're always externalized power. Mm. As long Right. you have a group of people externalizing their power, you can control them indefinitely. That's the only uh, way that the system that we have on the planet is able to maintain itself. Whether people want to call that the global white supremacy or they want to call that um, the New World Order or they want to call any other excuse of reptilian shapeshitters, Jew, whatever you want to call it, Jew all the externalized illusions that people want to use to, to excuse themselves for being personally responsible. Right. Understand that the only way that those particular illusions can have any type of force or, or influence in a person's life is if 
if people externalize their power onto these things in yeah. the first place. That's the one thing that I'm teaching our sons. We're not and our children. Do not externalize power. Okay. The notion of global white supremacy. That does not apply to, doesn't apply to your reality. Don't externalize your power onto that foolishness, that notion. The notion that there's this, you know, the new world order is out there to get you. No. Global whites, uh, uh, what's the other one? Global bankers, they're out there to get you. You're in trouble. No. Don't externalize your power. Don't maintain yourself. The police officers, that they're out there to, 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 you know, maim and harm you. And all of this Black Lives right. Matter stuff. Look, this is just media contrived. We're not teaching our children to abide any of that stuff because at the end of the day, we have to be responsible for what we do. And, and I'm very clear that ultimately the externalization of power is what maintains the system. And as long as we externalize the uh, power, the system will continue to perpetuate itself. And if people are unhappy with the system, why continue to externalize power? What you have to do is mm-hmm. begin to internalize power. And again, to, to bring this back to the issue of manhood, as a man, the best way for me to be in service to my family is to internalize my power. The notion of me externalizing it to global bankers or Bohemian Grove members or reptilian shapeshifters or global white supremacists is absolutely ridiculous. There's no way that I can do that because as a man, I have to stand up and, and any, any level of, um, any level of, of, of success that I have, it's because of what I've done. Any level of failure that I have, it's because of what I've done. Any experience that I have that is not to my liking, it's because of what I have done or what I am doing. And therefore, as a man, I have to claim uh, uh, that power, that that it's up to me. Ultimately, it's up to me. So we have to be clear about this. A lot of the programming causes us to externalize power as men and women, for that matter. We have to be very careful not to allow ourselves to externalize power. Oftentimes, the externalization of power is based upon myth. It's based upon illusions. It's about fanciful events and hoaxes that aren't even true that we accept as being true. Barack Obama is going to seal the oil well well head by using... uh, 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 what, what is it? A tactical nuke or something? Tactical yeah. nukes? I mean, come on. Are we serious? Are we serious? We have to be very careful about that. So, again, when we talk about manhood, intellectual process, asking critical questions, not becoming all emotional about things, and let time tell the truth. When you do that, you will not go wrong. You'll be able to in- internalize your power and always, not always externalizing power. And then when you internalize that power, you can use that power to benefit your own life. More importantly, you benefit the life of your, your mate, in my case, my wife. And then, of course, your children benefit as a, as a consequence. My power to, to influence my children's lives in a positive way is directly related to my ability to internalize my power in the first place. Uh, right on, excellent, and I've, <laughs> it, that externalization, externalization of power, I think, is like a very important point, man. It's very, I think, it's very crucial to the whole uh, quote-unquote matrix or whatever you want to call it—the system of control or the control grid or or what have you. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head with that. This external externalization of power uh, concept, because that that is what we're always being prodded to do like um like you you talk about you know we need to get uh we need to get a check on our appetites and but then the uh system wants to provoke and prod and continually stimulate those appetites with all this bombardment of sexual imagery and the stuff that you're always going to be uh confronted with if you step outside your house and uh the it, that is instrumental, I think, in control is to get people to not to to constantly prod and stimulate their in, their impulses, so that they want to act out upon those, and they and then they have uh, uh, less attention on the, you know, the more important things, or getting getting their act together, getting those things under control, 
And as long as I can keep people in that state, and then they could also in, incorporate and overlay the, uh, the you know, the, the concept of the, the boogeyman is always kind of at the door and that we're always supposed to be afraid. And then, you know, okay, who can save us? Well, um, armored police, the police state, the, the, the almighty powerful state, of course, says, oh, I, I, I'm here. I can help. I'll help you. Uh, uh, oh, just ask me, and I'm glad to do it. And it's just, it's just a big buffoon over there with like a, a you know, a pith helmet and uh, a 50 caliber uh, machine gun and everything. And uh, you know, it's just like, oh, really? I, I don't know. Thanks, man. I don't need your help. You know, it's like I, that's what I would suggest saying. But no, it's like, yeah, that's what it's about: externalization of power. Oh, yeah, come over here and help us, help us with this problem that they generate. They, they're generating it. Mm-hmm. Through their percep- mm-hmm. perception management uh, um, programs. Yeah, well, it's like perceiving a problem that doesn't even actually exist, and that causes people to externalize power, especially if, especially if the problem is perceived to be unsurmountable. And that's that's one of the issues in terms of the alternative media. When we talk to people like you know Alex Jones, who said a lot of what's proposed is like unsurmountable. Like, what are you going to do? They have so much power and control. They have satellites that can track you. You know, they're going to RFID your children and all this kind of. Nah, ain't nobody going to do that shit with my children. I don't know who you're talking to, uh, but if you if you give them the programming, um, and it's unsurmountable, then ultimately people will perceive themselves to be weak and powerless, and then they externalize power onto the very system that you know you're just you know Alex Jones is supposedly speaking out against. So it's a cycle. You know, and again, the ultimate objective is to externalize power. I want to say one other thing because I'm out of time, but I know we said an hour and a half, and we're almost at three hours. And, and my wife is now in the kitchen cooking for the children, so uh, okay. it, that that means that that I have to because I'm right next to the kitchen. Um, I want to say this too, real quickly here, because I just received an email from someone because they were asking about the 911 fear based mind control program, and they said that this year is very different compared to other years, and this is very true. Um, I've talked about this with, and I, I think the last time I came on, we talked about this. Um, uh, it may have been, yeah, I think the, I think we talked a little bit about this. That Within the six weeks uh, leading up to September 11th, you see a steady buildup of stories in the news dealing with Al-Qaeda, Osama bin Laden, um, September 11th, the Twin Towers, potential oh, yeah. terror threats, this type of thing. Um, and this has been going on since um, 2002. So every single year this is represented. This is what I call the now one based mind control program. It's ultimately designed to cause people to externalize power. This year it has been different because usually by this point the, the amount of propaganda in the news about a potential terror threat or some type of ISIS threat or, or Al-Qaeda in the past was mainly Al-Qaeda. Um, it was a lot. There was a lot more in the news. Now there has been some in the news, but not com- comparatively speaking, not as much. And there's a, and the person was asking, why is this the case? Based upon my perspective, and, and there's two things to consider here. And I just want to share this with people. The first thing is that what takes precedence, and what always takes precedence in media, is race. It's here in the United States of America, race more so than religion, race more so than terrorism, race more so than sexual orientation. Okay, so so right now, race is such a big propaganda piece that the notion of bringing something else in to take away from the momentum, um, it doesn't do a service in terms of maximizing the influential power that all of this race-based programming is, has, is, has had. And I'm telling you, it, there's so much of this race programming that has been going on, Confederate flag, uh, police shootings, um, uh, you know, what was the other one, the the church shooting and all. I mean, this is all. So to, to break the momentum, to bring this, this great terror uh, threat, it's contradictory to uh, maintaining the m- momentum. That's one of the issues. But there's there's actually three issues. The other there's another issue, and that is that we're in an election season. Mm-hmm. And therefore, a lot of the programming that we're receiving right now, it's about 
um, elections and, and putting people in a position uh, to where people get, begin to externalize power onto politicians. Yeah. But then there's another dynamic, and I want people to consider this. And again, time will tell the truth. I'm not proposing this as being what's going to happen because I'm very careful about not doing that. But what I'm saying here is that there is another projected event, okay, that is that is actually supposedly taking place. It's planned, and that is for Pope Francis to come to Philadelphia. Now, that's significant, okay? It's significant. And I can't remember the day. Um, it's after September 11th. It's not too long after September 11th, and I can't remember the date right now. But I want people to understand this. That if the script writers wanted to propagandize potential terror threats, it would be to their benefit to propagandize it closer to the arrival of Pope Francis into the United States. Mm. So I want people just to think about this as a possibility. Again, time always tells the truth, and we have to see how media plays it. But you have these three dynamics. You have the racial component that is taking precedence, and it always takes precedence here in the United States of America. Race is the major issue here in the United States of America, even more so than, than terrorism. But then you also have the elections, okay, so the, a lot of the propaganda is, is dealing with the elections and getting people to externalize power. Now, you can use terrorism to cause people to externalize power onto the elections. It may be that the elections were too soon in the election season at this point to want to cause people to externalize power as much as they can by using something like Pope Francis coming on uh, over to, to the United States and then proposing that their ISIS is potentially complaining a terror attack or let's say that Al-Qaeda or maybe Voltron, however you want to say it, <laughs> is planning some type of a terror attack. Now, if it meet in terms of script writing, it, that would be the best course of action. So it may be. I'm not saying that this is what is taking place. But I'm saying that it may be that media is holding off. The, the closer that we get to the Pope Francis, his um, coming to Philadelphia, that may be that the, the time period we're in the propaganda about a potential terror threat is actually ramped up. Now, I'm not saying that the propaganda hasn't existed leading up to September 11th because there has been stories in the news playing problems, Al -Qaeda, not Al-Qaeda, but ISIS and so on and so on. And then stories about September 11th. We'll get a whole lot of stories on September 11th about the September 11, 2001 attacks. I'm not saying that that hasn't happened, but compared to other years, it hasn't been as much. But this may have to do with the fact that the timing, it would make more sense to have the majority of that propaganda coming out closer to Pope Francis's, um uh, projected arrival into Philadelphia because now it becomes a globalized event. You can say, and then also an attack on religion. It's an attack on Christianity. So then you can further uh, fuel the religious-centric divide, Muslims against Christians, so forth and so on. So I'm just projecting this mm -hmm. not as something that is going to happen, but I'm saying as a potential in terms of script writing, that's what that would be how I would write the script. And it is nothing more than a script, too, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. Yeah, if you keep that in mind, I mean, that, I mean, for me, it, it, com it, it completely de decouples the, the whole, f the, the, the fear, uh, the fear car, the fear, uh, the big, the big, uh, uh, box car full of fear. And I guess it's, I decouple it and let it go. And it's like, I, from these sorts of analyses, you know, stuff. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I know what you're saying. And then, you know, okay, this event, and then, you know, it's, there's, there's plenty of time to, uh, digest it and mull it over. And then, you know, it's, a, then it's incorporated into the buildup of the big, uh, elect selections or elections and that whole, uh, dog and pony show and all of that <clears throat> nonsense. Uh, it, uh, yeah, it, it does make sense, you know, from that perspective. I, I agree. Yeah, and I should mention, um, I'm reading this article right here. Um, officials are urging people to show up when the Pope is in town on September 26th and 27th with public events planned for Independence uh, Mall and near the Philadelphia Museum 
uh, of art. There was also some some statements that were made too about um, the race based programming that that somehow they you know it might be you know who knows uh, criminals or quote unquote black people may show up and then there may be some sort sort of uh, conflict with the police officers and all this kind of stuff. So again, this can be this can also be played. The race based programming can be played into this. But I would propose that it's it's more probable. And again, I'm just saying probable that um, terrorist propaganda, potential terror threat against the Pope. Would would um, really uh, push the uh, fear-based mind control, the normal fear-based mind control programming uh, to a head. So that may actually take place in the af- after September 11th, uh, in and around September 26th or 27th. Again, I'm going to say this: I'm not projecting this as that it's going to take place. What I am saying is that in terms of script writing, this would be how I would write the script. And uh, ultimately, what we do: don't succumb to the emotions, engage in proper intellectual process, look for the evidence or proof, and then ultimately let time tell the truth. Yeah, I think that's. Uh yeah, that's a, a good approach myself. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's just, uh, just, yeah, remember that it's all about perception management and creating a narrative for us all to fall in line with. And, uh, you know, like Carl Rove, didn't he just kind of blatantly come out and state, oh, yeah, we're the creators of history. And then while you're analyzing that, we're going to be on to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And, uh, yeah, have a good time. I mean, we're, we're the we're movers and shakers. We're, 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 you know, controlling your minds, and uh, yeah, that's, that's what they're doing, and uh, we follow suit to one degree or another. But uh, I think if we go into it with the knowledge that we have, I think we're going to be a positive uh, influence in our you know sphere of in- particular sphere of influence, whatever it happens to be, and we're not going to be reverberating that fear. Yes, I think that's important too. You know, we're not we're not we're going to be, oh, why is that guy so mellowed out? Why is he so calm? Why is he so nonplussed about all this stuff? You know, he's, you know you're, you're a stabilizing force in your culture, in your surroundings. I think that's important, too. Yes, absolutely. And yeah. also, yeah, real quick, I just mentioned uh, the Democrats picked Philadelphia for the 2016 convention. So this is going to be interesting. I want to see how this plays itself out. <laughs> if you have a terrorist, potential terror threat against you know the Pope in, in Philadelphia, uh, you know, in a couple of weeks. Okay, I'm just saying this as a script. Um, that would really work well for the convention. Because now the Democrats, they're going to they pick Philadelphia, and when they have their convention in 2016, this will be part of the vernacular. Because remember, remember in the past, the, the, the conventions, what they would do is they would they would recite, they would say over and over again. I mean, there's even video footage of this where they say Al Qaeda, Al Qaeda, Al Qaeda, September 11th, September 11th, September 11th. You see this on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Um, Giuliani kept saying it over and over in his speech. Bush kept saying it over and over again in his speech. Uh, terrorism, terror, terrorist, terror, 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 terror. <laughs> I know. You, you remember that? So, so yeah, this was, this is going to be interesting to see how this plays itself out. And again. I'm smiling while I'm saying it because, again, it doesn't mean that act, something actually has to take place. People can approach this if it does. If this propaganda comes out, we can just approach this as a script. Just think of it as a television show. I call it the Global Motion Picture Stage Show. When you look mm-hmm. at it that way, yeah. you don't succumb to fear because you see it for what it is. You see it as nothing more than a stage show. Nothing ever really happens. But if you say that something is going to happen, you say that there was a terror threat that had been foiled, okay, it puts people in a state of fear. But if you see it as nothing more than a script, yeah. there's no re- reason to be fearful. You just say, hey, look, mass media report. Reporting on something, there's no evidence or proof to back it up. Why is it accepted as being true? Okay, let me just keep it moving and remain calm. <laughs> yeah, scene four, act two, and this. That's is, right. That's yeah. right. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, man, I, I really appreciate it. I wanted to say, too, that you exude this positive energy, and I feel, like, charged up after speaking with you. And it's like I, I just wanted to I, – I, I, have you ever been told that before? Uh, yeah, yeah. People said, you know, I, I tend to be a, a positive type of a person. I also tend to remain calm about stuff. You know, I don't, oh, yeah. I don't get too riled up. I tend to be very patient with stuff. I'm very patient with my children, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And, and, and I think Good. it's important. And it doesn't mean that we can't look into information and, and – um, you know, even the, the, the difficult stuff, the, what people would say, the dark stuff, you know, because I've gone through all that stuff. But it's just important for us to have a level of emotional and psychological balance. And I think that it, it has a positive effect on the world. There's nothing wrong with looking to, into the Illuminati or looking into even reptilian shapeshooters, because I went into that, man. I, I was deep into that. But I also recognize that I had to transcend the paradigm of fear. When you transcend the paradigm of fear, you see things a lot more clearly. And then you also bring a, a level of positivity into your life that you can share with others. You know, And I, I, I pride myself on that. I try to remain as positive as possible. It doesn't mean I'm perfect, because there are days where I have my faults, and there's days that I screw up on things. There's days that I react to things in a, in a not in too positive way. But for the most part, um, I try to remain positive. And when I do screw up, I try to get myself back in line. You know, I, I, we call that self-check. I check myself. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, it's like when you were a little child and then you you wanted to confront the monster under the bed finally, besides being just laying there being terrorized. And then uh, you get down there, maybe you get your flashlight, and you look under there and it's dust bunnies. That's all this stuff is, man. It's dust bunnies, dude. It's just dust bunnies. Yes, absolutely. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, hey, thanks a lot. And uh, yeah, we, we need to. Yeah, we need to do it again. And that's why I wanted to ask you about that. Uh, and, well, it wasn't a prediction, but you know what I mean. But because uh, you pay, you were. You've been paying close attention to these cycles, this this nine yeah. eleven repeating yes, cycle. Well, let's see, let's see how these things go, man. And, and depending oh, yeah. on how the script goes, you know, we can come back on and talk about that. We can talk about other stuff. When my documentary's done, I definitely would love to come back. You know, I'll send y'all the DVD, both of y'all. I'll send y'all the DVD. Y'all check it out, and we'll have plenty to talk about. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, yeah I'm, I'm all I'm all about that. Yeah, definitely. So. All right, so that that was a really good call. I really enjoyed it. And uh, do you have anything uh, you want to put out there? Oh, yes, real quick. So, uh, everyone, if you want to check out my work, again, I have a website, LennonHonorFilms.com. That's dealing with more of the conspiracy uh, conspiracy theory work. Uh, A lot of my work is up there. I've done, uh, I don't even know how many documentaries, um, many, many, many hours of documentary work there, research material. Um, My other website is LennonHonor.com. Um, and then also have a YouTube page, Linen Honor Films, that I update um, every once in a while. So y'all can check out my work there. I also want to promote my film, of course, NWA, A Critical Analysis. Um, right now I'm closing out the research phase. I've been doing a lot of research online, also reading a lot of biographies. Um, it's a lot. It's, it's labor intensive. Also doing the data collection and, and the word counts for each track of, of each album and going through all four albums and, and all of that. It took a lot, a lot of time. Uh, so people can look forward to that. Also, I, am, I do plan on launching a crowdfunding campaign for the documentary. Um, so please stay tuned. You can you can head over to my uh, YouTube account. And once I have it up, I'll promote it there. I'm also on Facebook. I'll promote it there. In the meantime, if anyone wants to support my work and in particular my documentary that I'm working on, NWA Critical Analysis, they can visit LennonHonor.com forward slash NWA. Okay, LennonHonor, L-E-N-O-N-H-O-N-O-R.com forward slash NWA. Your financial support is very much needed and will be very much appreciated. And again, I want to thank uh, Chris and John. Uh, keep up the great work. Thanks for having me on. This was a quick three hours, bro. Oh, yeah. And it went by in a flash. We was only supposed to do an hour and a half, but this was a, <laughs> this was probably the quickest three-hour interview that I've ever had in my life. But that's probably because I've really enjoyed myself. Thank you so much, uh, brothers. Keep doing this wonderful, wonderful work. 
Uh, thank you very much, Lennon. And uh, you have a good rest of the week and the rest of your day. And uh, hope to talk to you again soon. All right. Y'all take care. Peace, man. Okay. Take care. Bye.
Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.